Good afternoon, evening, morning, whatever time it is, DC fans. I am Kelly Gaines here for the DC Comics News Podcast, episode 79. Today we have some very exciting news about new virtual events, comic books, movies, and all the good stuff that's coming out. And I am joined by my two wonderful co-hosts, Kendra Hale. Say hello, Kendra. Hello. Hello, hello. And Seth Singleton. Why, hello. Happy to be here. (laughs) So let's jump right in. Our first bit of news is convention news. Um, Even though we're not going to be seeing any in-person conventions this year, we are getting a lot of virtual content. And among that is the Justice Con. Um, Kendra, what do you think? I think I actually like the freedom that that the digital con is going to give and a precedence that it's going to set up. Because while we're in the middle of a pandemic, one of the most important things is for everyone to feel safe. And with doing this virtual con, it's going to give access, especially with those like what we did with April Bowlby, who was here. You know, it gives people a wider range of being able to come to events and, and to meet and greet, even if it is on a digital format. So I'm really excited to see how this one plays out and how successful it is to see if it does set a precedence for future cons to come. Seth, what about you? I completely agree. You know, one of the things that was always an issue for me about San Diego and some of the bigger cons is that, I mean, I don't know if there are any bigger than San Diego, but (laughs) there was always that feeling of just like, I mean, it's like a sea, you know what I mean? It's just this unbelievable sea. And yet for all of that, there's still only a limited number of people or boats, if we stick with the whole sea analogy, uh, that can actually go on there safely, right? So who can go, who can afford, who can get access? And now suddenly, with the announcement of San Diego Comic-Con deciding that they're doing a virtual, followed by things like DC's Fandom, and now this Justice Con, which just sounds like it's the most earnest and heartfelt attempt to put something together for fans there there's something just completely genuine i mean it's right up there with uh kids you know doing a lemonade stand so they can fund their trip to europe or something you know what i mean like there's this feeling of like you guys are reaching for the stars here and yet at the same time how does anything ever get done how 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 far do you find out you can go but in the process what a great you know list um some compelling, uh, almost serious stuff on the first day that American Foundation for Suicide Prevention kind of threw me off. But I love all these different spotlights that they're doing, whether it's Ray Porter, Ray Fisher. I think they call him Fisher in this, but maybe that's just a typo. Uh, Zack Snyder, diversity in Zack Snyder's films. Deborah Snyder and Snyder's Amazons. And it, it just really seems like something where if it's like, hey, are you looking for the chance to connect with your community about what you love about Justice League, the concept of justice, the, the characters that represent it, or anything else like that. Well, here's an event that you can, you know, participate in, no matter where you are. And suddenly this whole idea of access is not as limiting as it used to be. I really agree with Kendra that we're looking at a new precedent, and I really think an exciting new future. I love the possibility all of these things are bringing. I can't wait to be part of as many as possible. Now, how do I find a way to sleep in between? Kelly, I'm working on that one. What's your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. This is, um, 
I mean, definitely in terms of accessibility. And yeah, I've I've tried to get tickets to San Diego Comic-Con in the past, and I've always been way too late to the party. So the fact that this year there's, you know, kind of this surplus of availability and room because it's all online, everybody's doing this from home, and it is a whole lot safer. Um, I think the example I always go back to is last year at New York Comic-Con, I genuinely there were floors that I could not get to on certain days because it was just too packed like you would get to the top of the escalator and then just kind of stand there and never get to go down the escalator so it's definitely a good idea to move these events online and and Seth like you were saying these panels sound really really interesting um I think the two that really stood out to me were uh, the artists of release the Snyder Cut because I really want to know a little bit more about exactly what that is um, and also, uh, right, like, what is what are the artists behind this? Is there, like, an underground, like, Banksy kind of movement? I don't know. But it sounds really, really cool. Um, and also the uh, diversity in Zack Snyder films one sounds really cool, too. So I, I'm excited to check those out. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's definitely a pick-me-up with, um, I mean, not everybody depending on what state you're in and kind of what it looks like is is still stuck at home but a lot of us are um so yeah having something to look forward to that it's like no matter what like I don't even have to get dressed I can just roll off in my pajamas and do comic con and it'll be great um yeah I, I really really like this idea and I'm just going to add on that Kendra you pointed out one of the most important things about how safe we need to be right now and how this is such a great opportunity kelly you just echoed it and i felt like wow that's that's an important thing to keep in mind like what a way to make sure that people have access what a way to make sure that they can do it safely and what a great opportunity that you can give people a platform where they can gather and have this great sort of celebration i was also curious if anyone else noticed the sean o'connell release the snyder cut book I was not aware of the book. Oh, and about the <laughs> artist thing, I totally was wondering, Kelly, what you thought. Do you guys remember it seemed like during times when people would want to talk about stuff from the Snyder Cut, there would be these artist sketches that would suddenly get dropped as well? And I wonder if it has anything to do with those, because that was kind of like part of the momentum. Like they would give you like conceptualizations of like Steppenwolf or, or other scenes the way the Snyder Cut was supposed to go. But then the you know the final version didn't feature that. Do you wonder if it has anything to do with that too? Because now my curiosity is like totally peaked. I bet it does. I bet I bet that has to play into it because that was so much of what got us all hyped for the possibility of a Snyder cut. Like that was the you know the, the visualization helped so much. Yeah, I, I seem to remember having more than a couple of conversations about that where it'd be like, here's some new, you know, concept art that never saw the light of day. So um, made me wonder. Any thoughts yeah. on that one, Kendra? <laughs> well, I mean, when it comes to that, not necessarily because, I mean, I'm sure that they're going to let us know. And that'll be exciting to see in and of itself what what they're going to do, because it seems like that's kind of the theme of this Justice Con is the Snyder Cut. But what I was going to say was um, I saw that they're doing it on the YouTube and, and that's something that really kind of hits me because for gamers, Evo and E3, those have always been featured in the past for people who haven't necessarily been able to get tickets to these events. They've always been able to do their launches online. 
um, from YouTube so that you can actually watch and see what games are coming, et cetera, and so forth. I think that if that's been so successful in the past, that's definitely something that these cons could take a look at to see how it has been successfully done and how they can manage that. The only thing I see being kind of an issue would be something like the question and answer, um, just because that's something that you'd have to be way more streamlined with. I mean, you'd have to have people available to watch the comment section and and be able to keep up with the flow, especially with something like a Comic-Con where you have, like Kelly said, so many people that are there for it. And since it would give the, the benefit of being able to bring in greater names who may not have the time to go to a con, but can definitely sit down for an hour or two like they do with us, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that part of it when it comes especially to the question and answer. Do you guys have any thoughts on that, Seth? Yeah, actually, I do. I, I agree. There's going to have to be some sort of moderator, a uh, series of moderators, actually, because as soon as you brought up the comment section, I was like, oh, wow, yeah, there's certain live stuff you just don't want to have happen. There's got to be some kind of a delay. And it wouldn't surprise me if leading up to uh, all of these events, there's going to be opportunities to send in your questions now kind of a thing, right? So they can sort of vet them, um, get a chance to just sort of feel like they've considered all of the ways a question can go or how they, you know, I mean, unfortunately, there's like this degree of you want to make sure it's a safe platform for everyone viewing. And it doesn't come down to, it comes down to this fine line of like censorship and respect. But I, I do feel like in order for that to occur, there will have to be people watching. There will have to be a system that sort of, you know, prevents anything that's trying to abuse the platform, use it for uh, negative speech or uh, any other messaging or attempts to, you know, utilize it. But I think that you're right, Kendra. They could really learn from those who've already done it successfully. And I hadn't considered how those gaming events were accessible in this way, but now that I can, it, it seems like the smart thing you would want to do is say, hi, we're, we're hopping on to, and we'd love to know how to not get burned. Now, how those conversations go, I'm not nearly important enough to be a part of them, but I do think that's a really valid point, that they will have to have some sort of aspect of control involved, and with that, they're, they're going to want to look to the people that have done it successfully so far. Do you know if on those gaming platforms, uh, for any of those gaming events, Kendra, if there was a system in place that, that comes to mind, or uh, especially with Q&A, is that something that they featured, or uh, you know, what you can tell us about that, if it was well, used? Well, with, with E3 specifically, um, it's basically that they have kind of a setup like what, what we see here where they've got a lineup of who's coming in. So Sony would have their time, um, PlayStation, Xbox, all of, all of them, Niantic, all of them would come in and they would have their time to feature. And the difference between the two is that with those, you have your in-person and you have your viewers at home. I don't believe that there's actually been a live Q&A happening during things like E3 or even Evo, but they have done, I'm sure that they have teams that work specifically for the individual gaming companies that review the comments that come in while people are watching live. 
And I'm sure that that's something for like the events where it's just a spotlight feature or um, like with the, the suicide one, I'm sure they're going to have moderators to keep an eye on those comments. But when it comes to a Q&A, I think that's going to be open ball field where they're going to have to learn. And it's going to be a continuous growth to learn what is best and what works for for them, depending on their cons. Yeah, I think yeah. that's, you know, I, I think it's going to be a learning experience, <laughs> hopefully not painful, but, you know, it's probably going to be about learning from mistakes. And uh, yeah, now I'm really curious. Ah, interesting stuff I hadn't considered before. And now I have to think about poor little brain. Poor well, little brain. And one thing that it might do and I mean, if, if they listen, you know, I'll, I'll praise the gods that are listening in comics. But one thing that might actually help is I know that you can actually do moderator rooms like what we do with Skype and with, with other platforms, even on Facebook and, and through Slack, where they may have the different news outlets that are coming in that they know are going to be. They may have rooms that are isolated specifically for those so that that way you have your fans and your general public on one side of things. But those that are news outlets or media outlets have a completely separate venue in order to ask the questions. So I don't know if that's something that they're looking into or if that would even be conceivable for them to use, but it sounds like that would probably be the easiest way to moderate when it comes to that specifically. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a really good idea. Um, yeah. I mean, hopefully it, they, they have to have a plan at this point for them to have moved from you know, we might have the regular convention to know we're definitely going online. At some, someone has to have pitched, so how are we going to interact with the audience and how are we going to interact with the press? Um, yeah, that'll be really interesting, but I wouldn't be surprised if it is sort of a limited, almost chat room kind of setting for, uh, you know, professional questions and then kind of a separate, more screened one. And actually, I feel like I've seen a couple, I think it was, Although I, I'm pretty sure Archer's over, but I think recently Archer was asking if anyone had questions for any of the like staff and uh, and cast on Twitter. And, you know, they were asking people to submit stuff. So I wonder if there's, you know, kind of little rumblings like that moving already. It's possible. Yeah, like they'll have a hashtag or something that people can, can tag to their questions. That would right. be really interesting to see. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that. I mean, if we can live tweet at TV shows, we can definitely we can definitely <laughs> do it for a convention. So moving forward into movie news, um, there is an actual casting announcement coming out for Black Adam, and the actor Noah Centineo has been cast as Adam Smasher. And we also now know that he is officially cast as He-Man in the upcoming He-Man and the Masters of the Universe movie. Um, Seth, what did you think of this? Well, I'm going to warn you first. I'm in my squeaky chair, so if you hear any squeaking, that's me. <laughs> that that means that I might be on my way to a squeaky rocker, but simply a matter of time. Uh, I was really in, encouraged by this. Um, I love casting decisions. Um, it sort of gives you an idea of you know who you can start to picture on the screen. I have been cheering for Black Adam the closer we got to the idea of having the JSA be a part of the movie. So this just sort of cements some of those ideas, because I remember it was a few months back that we were talking about casting calls 
and uh, the announcement that characters like Hawkman, Adam Smasher, and I feel like one other JSA, at least one other JSA member was referenced. And then stories started to follow that the JSA would be involved. Adam Smasher is a pretty interesting character. Um, I have kind of fun remembering from back in like the Infinity Inc. days, uh, you know, the transition of then uh, a hero by the name of Nuklon who became Adam Smasher and, and how much of that will play into this. But one of the neat things that was kind of fun about him was he was just this like massive figure on the screen. And so when I saw this casting, like I, I see this, you know, story and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, OK, but I can only see the half of his left shoulder and from the neck up. How big is this guy? How do they, you know, how big is he really? How big do they? Because I'm also reminded of <laughs> my wife loved to do this. I can't remember what it is, but there's another movie that the guy who plays uh, the Persian king from the movie 300, you know, who's like 10 feet tall, um, is actually a normal sized actor. But they did all this elongation through camera work and it was very effective. And then later I see him in another role. And my wife's like, by the way, that's the bad guy king from 300. And I'm like, really? He doesn't seem nearly as o- <laughs> ominous. <laughs> so how much of that could come into play with uh, Nick? Uh, oh, boy. This is where I butcher somebody's name. Centineo. Um, how much of that comes into his portrayal? Because the thing you got to keep in mind about someone like Adam Smasher is the whole point of who he is, is that he can go ahead and control molecular structure density so he can make himself bigger harder more dense what's that going to look like on screen how are they going to portray i i mean i think he's got uh everything you're kind of looking for in somebody to play the role in that i can see his face and i know what he's going to look like i don't know much about who he is beyond that so i'm really just sort of intrigued by it all because i'm like all right so we got a face Wonder how they're going to make him like Adam Smasher. Still got a lot of questions, but we've cast Adam Smasher. For me, that's a pretty cool thing. Kendra, how about you? I'm in the same boat with you guys. I mean, I, I'm I'm excited that not only is JSA being confirmed and we're getting to see members of it, which creates this beautiful thing called an open door. So that that way, you know, we, we have the possibility of finally seeing some of the great stories coming. And those are ones that were on my bucket list of, okay, if I were to see a story centered around characters that you don't typically see featured, they're really high on the list. And we've already gotten to see what Stargirl looks like. So getting to see, um, I'm going to butcher his name too, Noah Centineo, uh, getting to see him becoming the Adam Adam Smasher is going to be a really interesting thing to see. I found a picture of him that wasn't just from shoulder blades up and he, I, I mean, he's got, he's got muscle definition, but Adam Smasher was a huge guy, whether it was the first one or the sun. And it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see if they follow along with, like you said, what they did with 300, where they add a little bit of bulk to him to make him into this almost Bane-esque character. I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what they're going to do. Either way, I'm excited that they're going to be bringing in these characters because that leaves a lot on the floor to play with as movies go forward. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I have faith 
in their ability to kind of bulk him up just on the grounds that if he's able to play He-Man, then he, I, I mean, he has to have some kind of like macho undertone. <laughs> and I, I'm trying not to picture that YouTube video of, of He-Man singing because that is the only thing that pops into my head whenever I hear <laughs> He-Man anymore. <laughs> Anytime that anybody's seen is- He-Man, I got the He-Man going in my head. So I'm right there with you. <laughs> It's I like, and I I know he was. I mean, I guess it's because the show came out just slightly before my time, but I learned about He Man basically through YouTube, and also those really great memes of Skeletor and his Snuggie holding a glass of wine because that was my like Facebook background <laughs> photo for maybe two years. But um, it's I I really do like um, as you guys are saying the fact that we're going to see the JSA. Um, that we're going to, getting faces put to these characters. I'm very excited to see who Hawkman is. I don't, I don't think we found that out yet because I, I think that was the first character way back when, when we started talking about this movie, that um, you know, someone was like, "Oh, but what if we get to see Hawkman?" And at first, I was like, but, "Nah, we're not going to see Hawkman. They never make Hawkman." And then, but it, that's kind of the good thing with the direction that DC has been going in with movies lately is they're sort of swinging for the fences and trying things that they haven't tried before. So, I, I mean, if anything, this that makes this the perfect time to have the JSA actually show up. And, and Kendra, like you were saying, it just leaves a whole big open door for them to bring other characters in and take that storyline somewhere else. So I'm excited. Um, and I, I'm not familiar with this actor either. But again, if he can play He-Man, I, I have faith that he can play Adam Smasher as well. So our next bit of movie news, a little bit, little bit interesting, a little bit different. The Batman is going to resume shooting in September, I believe. Um, but they are going to be scrapping all of their on-location footage and going just with whatever it is that they film on set. So they're reconstructing everything on a set and I guess are essentially starting the movie over. Um, Seth, what'd you think? I'm really interested by this. Um, I mean, it makes sense that location work is going to be a lot more challenging if your main goal is to keep everyone safe, not only working on the film, but anyone who might be in the surrounding areas. Location work just suddenly adds so many layers of risk. Um, I'm also intrigued then, like, okay, so how do you take what you'd been doing and recreate it on the set. Don't get me wrong. I've seen amazing sets. Uh, We've all witnessed stuff where you're like, they did that in a set. That's phenomenal. Um, But there was a feeling that was developing early on when it was announced with all of these great sort of um, Gothic art that they were looking at, that there would be this really fun approach that we could look forward to. How much of that was already captured and we still get to enjoy, I'm curious about. Um, However, now all of that is being scrapped. Um, I'm I'm curious to see, you know, what the decision will be, if there's any of it that does get to stay in. I'm also, though, curious, like, okay, how how do you pull that off? How do you make it happen within a studio? And what else is going to, you know, change about the approaches are there any limitations where we know that they have these gigantic studio structures are they big enough to uh, accommodate everything you're trying to do and then if they are just what does it mean now that they're building the sets Um, i'm also intrigued because 
We got a little bit of information from our good friend, Mr. Steve J. Ray, who couldn't be here, but let us know that plate photography and stunt work is already resumed for the film. And now it's just a question of the principal actors coming back in September. So I thought that was a nice little inside track he provided for us. Um, Overall, I think it's good news that they're starting up. I think the adjustments are intelligent and practical. And now I'm just wondering if we're going to be left with a feeling at some point down the road of what could have been. But if they're able to capture what they wanted to from the locations they were going to shoot at and they're able to um, authentically recreate it within the studios, I think we're still in for a wonderful, magical experience. And the knowledge is starting back up. That's really good stuff for me. Kendra, how about you? Well, and, and and I agree with that. It says here that you know the sets have been used extensively throughout Batman's film history, and so this this isn't obviously a new pathway for film to go down by using a set versus using an actual location. And safety, of course, is main priority with that. But I think that my take on it is when it comes to them using a set, it's because Gotham is really hard to recreate because it it's seen differently through the eyes of almost every fan who's ever picked up a Batman book or, or any, anything like Harley Joker, any of the characters that are, are within the Gotham verse. It's hard because like with the Sin City series, the city itself becomes this huge character. And that's something that I think is, is important for filmmakers to portray in a good light because it's the same feeling with Gotham. Gotham becomes this, this whole character unto itself. And if they weren't able to get that with the locations that they were choosing, it would make sense that they weren't getting the feel for the film that they wanted to portray. So for them to be like, you know what, scrap it and let's work on it through a set. I think that that's going to give them more freedom because it's going to give them the chance to create the world that they want with the story that they're wanting to tell. So kudos to them for being brave enough to do that because, you know, with all of the hype that's been around this film, it's got to be scary to make big decisions like that because of, unfortunately, the fear of backlash from fans. But I think that this is going to, like I said, give them more freedom to create the story that they want to tell and giving Gotham the stage that she deserves. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I agree with that completely. I mean, first of all, the fact that they're taking the safety of the cast and crew and, um, you know, anyone living in the area that they were shooting so seriously is is definitely, um, you know, a, a, a bonus. And it talks or, or it shows that the integrity of the people working on this movie is, is where it needs to be, especially for a Batman movie. I mean, it's it, it makes us or, or it makes me feel better um, to know that we don't have kind of this just push ahead, do whatever needs to be done to make it the most spectacular big movie it has to be. It can still be all of that and be filmed on a set. Um, I think the one drawback that I had is whether or not this is going to be and we see a lot more CGI. Um, I, I think, and especially after Joker, I started to like the idea of having a more almost closed vision um, 
when it comes to some of the comic book movies that we see, and especially something like this Batman, where it's going to be a detective story and much more noir than maybe films that we've seen previously. Um, my hope has kind of been that it'll be a little bit more realistic in a sense, or maybe just, I, I think one of the things that irritated me with some of the, the Justice League movies and, and the past movies has been that sort of over-stylized CGI look. Um, so I'm hoping in building this set that it is more of, you know, an actual construction process where they're making these, you know, real life-like buildings and not so much that we're just seeing, you know, green screen Gotham in the background. But I do have, and it's begrudging faith, but I do have faith in this movie and the people making it um, just because it's been, I mean, we've been talking about it for maybe two years now. And so far, the decisions that they've made seem to be in line with this being a really important creative endeavor for them. Um, you know, and, and Matt Reeves really seems to take the character seriously. And we did talk recently about the fact that they they kind of took this this break from filming to rethink aspects of the movie and look back at what they were doing and decide what we want to do differently. The fact that they came out of that with, you know, we're going to graph everything that we've done I mean that that makes me just a little bit nervous but it, even if it just comes down to the safety of the cast and crew that is a huge thing so I I can't be mad at it basically but I mean what do you guys think do you think that it's more likely that we'll see more CGI in in a, a set filmed movie or do you think it'll be less so Ooh, that's not easy to answer um, the first thing that comes to mind is that they have the time right now. I mean, if, if the principals aren't coming back until September, how much can you accomplish between today, which is July 18th, and September? If you're a highly skilled craftsman with a great team, what could you recreate, especially if you've already got location shots? Um, that could really be um, an opportunity to say, we've got the time, we've got the manpower, and we have the skill to do it, then why not take advantage of that? Just like I've really enjoyed the fact that movies uh, directors like Matt Reeves, like Patty Jenkins, have recently said, you know, the important thing about the, the break that was caused by the coronavirus breakout is the opportunity to look at what we were doing. And take advantage of the fact that we suddenly had this gift of time that hadn't been available. It, it could be a curse if you look at it one way. But the gift about it is the chance to look over what you've been doing, ask some hard questions, make some really important choices. And with that, perhaps improve what you thought you were doing. Jenkins said, look, my, my next sequel was based on things before this happened. Now I'm looking at how things have changed since then. Reeves was talking about the idea of, hey, we're, we're looking at this story for all the things we can do within what we've already done and what we want to accomplish when we're finished. So I think the idea of taking advantage of this time and considering how much can be built before you have to turn to CGI, that's a great opportunity that I would like to see them take advantage of. Whether or not that's what they do, uh, we're, we'll find out, you know, in due time. But that's the thing that's going to, you know, be tickling my brain for a while right now. You have the time. What do you do with it? Right. Kendra, how about you? I think that's an excellent point. I mean, they do. They have they have this massive amount of time and this this group of, of like a hive mind 
where they sh they should be able to draw from that experience and come out with a good plan. I mean, some CGI is not bad, but you know, there's there's really no reason that we should see an overabundance of it. I mean, especially if you're just needing locational shots. I don't think I think that you could take both the safety of everyone involved and deliver a good product at the same time, especially with the time that they're being given. I've seen I've, I mean, I've seen things on Broadway. I've seen things on on other movies that, you know, it's, it's absolutely possible. It's the precedence has already been set. So I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. If, if there's a ton of CGI, it, it's going to feel almost, I guess, to me, like a little bit of a failure. But I'm not going to put that into the into the ether just now. I'd, I'd like to see what they're going to do, especially with with the time that they're being given. Kelly? Yeah, yeah, I agree. And it's I it's it's a good point that they've had all this extra time because I'm sure there there's no way that creators in charge of such a big movie that they've already put so much heart into are going to turn around and say, "Well, let's, you know, let, let's do the easier version of this." I so I'm hopeful. Um, but it it's definitely something that I'll be thinking about because there's there's a kind of grit that I feel like they're trying to go for with this Batman that I will look really and actually I'm I'm thinking back to old noir movies and old movie sets and it might really help that kind of old school detective vibe if they really do the set correctly. So I mean we'll see. But again, at the very least, they're taking into consideration the the health and safety of the people working on the film. Um and that that is definitely the the biggest thing for me. So in other movie news, there is a Wonder Woman 1984 tie-in novel that reveals how Steve Trevor is back for Wonder Woman 1984 after passing away in the previous movie. Um, but there is a little bit of a question as to whether or not we're going to get those answers in the movie itself. Seth, what did you think? I think this is such a smart way to give us an answer that only creates more questions. <laughs> Um, that, that's the one thing I, I love when somebody's like, well, ask your question. You're like, here, how does Steve Trevor come back? Well, it has to do with something we call a dream stone. Yes, you have more questions, but I answered your question, didn't I? And you're like, oh, come on, man. Why, why, why are you so smart? Oh, that was a really good answer. This is a really great idea. And I'm really intrigued by the fact that, by the way, if you're listening and you don't want to know. Like, just hit that skip button, so many of those 15-second things on the player, until you're past this. Because the story does point out that there are spoilers for the book that may be included. Uh, the book, Wonder Woman 1984, the junior novel, has its own take. Whether or not this is employed by Wonder Woman 1984, I don't know. But the idea of the dreamstone, of this magical, empowered uh, artifact... And it, it, according to the description, it's in the Smithsonian where both Diana and Kristen Wiig, Barbara Ann Minerva are working. And it's got the magic powers similar to the Lasso of Truth, but it can grant a wish. Diana's wish is received to come back. But the story points out that one of the things that's important to note about the Dreamstone is it's, it's magic. And magic has rules. Like... You can never get something without giving something. 
you can never, you know, uh, show your intent without there being a repercussion. It's such an, uh, what is it? For every action, there is equal and opposite reaction example. And this suggests that Diana gets back Steve, perhaps through the Dreamstone. But that doesn't mean that Steve is going to get to stay. And I'm really intrigued because now I'm thinking to myself, okay, so you're telling a story. And your whole point of telling this story is to do something for the character. In fact, I saw a recent discussion by a couple of our reviewers about the recent events in Nightwing and uh, a challenge about the idea of amnesia and whether or not it improves the character, helps fortify them and move them forward through the story arc. And with this one, there's got to be a purpose to bringing back Steve Trevor. There's got to be a reason why. And if it's to bring about either closure or to show that things that are good come in and out of our life and what we can't control is how long they stay, but what we can control is what we do with them, then this could be a really lovely way for Diana to get back Steve for the time that we have in this movie. And then also to experience a process of growth if he's not able to be there by the time the movie comes to a completion, maybe with a different sort of emotional feeling than we had at the end of the last movie. But then also because of that, Diane is going to be ready. Wonder Woman will be strengthened by this experience and she'll be prepared for whatever's coming next. Now, this is just sort of like where I was initially going from it. I'm also curious because the story does a nice job of bringing up Cheetah and Maxwell Lord. And one of the things that's been bugging me, and I mentioned it a couple of episodes back, was how much could Maxwell Lord play into the creation of Cheetah? How much can his influence lead uh, Barbara Minerva's character to make the choices she does? Or does this dreamstone somehow muddy it all up? I, I really want to know what Kendra has to say about it, too. What's your thoughts? I have a feeling I'm going to get hate mail for my answer to this one. <laughs> like, I'm already prepared. The voice of the scent! Because there's my, there's my spoiler, my, my trigger warning, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Because I hate this idea. I love the fact that they... I'll, I'll say why I loved it first. I love the fact that they included this in a junior novel that was targeted for 8- to 12-year-olds. So it's almost like the, the, the kids get in on the secret that parents may not know. So I love that. I love that aspect that it could be considered canon. But the thing that I don't like is the the man has already passed. And it almost feels like it's following this trope that comics usually do follow. And that is that, yes, this character died, but look, there's this magical way that we're going to bring them back only to kill them again. And, I mean, that's not set in stone what they're going to do, but it's just one of those things where you guys have already done this so many times in in comics and in movies, and maybe that's their way of bringing that back to the screen to show that that does happen a lot. But like you brought up, Maxwell, Maxwell Lord, and Cheetah also get get a potential wish on this this Dreamstone. So it'll be curious to see what their wish is and whether or not that plays into how Cheetah becomes Cheetah. But I mean, for me, it's just one of those things where there's so there's so many stories in the Wonder Woman universe. And I'm trying to be respectful when it comes to the, the creators, because I'm sure that they have a storyline that was that was plotted out and panned. And this is how they want things to go. 
But for me personally, as a comic fan, it's just like, okay, well, you, you did a brilliant job. He had this great heroic death in, in the original movie. Why are you guys going to bring him back and we're going to focus on this story all over again? It's almost like rehashing the same material just because you couldn't come up with something that was original, which is crazy given the fact of Wonder Woman's history. It, it's just, it, it hits me in a bad place. It's almost like reading 52 again and seeing that ice cream bit. And it just, it, it shuts me down just a little bit. So I'm going to be devil's advocate here because I just, I want to see how it plays out to see why he's being re resurrected, why he's bringing brought back what his part is to play. And because like you said, there are rules with magic Hint, hint, they could bring in Zatanna, just saying. But I really want to see what the repercussions are going to be for, for this wish and, and how it's going to be dissected and twisted, even though it seems like the, the most innocent of wishes. It's what the heart wants. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. When I initially heard that Steve Trevor was coming back for Wonder Woman 1984, I was a little bit thrown because he did have a really, a, a, I think, a, a worthy ending in the first movie. I mean, he, he died heroically. He died in a way that hit Diana harder than I think it would have been if, um, you know, if it, if it was something later down the line. The fact that he died at that point in the story and that she was sort of, learning how to navigate life in a new world without the person that brought her there and the person she trusted most. Um, to me, that's a really strong character development point. But in terms of the Dreamstone, one of the other things I'm thinking is that maybe it's not Steve Trevor in the way we think about Steve Trevor. Maybe, um, you know, if, the, if people were looking to take down Wonder Woman and you had a magical Dreamstone, you could wish for something that would distract her, that would make her, um, you, you know, throw her off her game. And if there's anything that would do that, the the magical reappearance of Steve Trevor probably would. Um, so, yeah, it's it's an interesting area. I'm not sure. I, I just don't know yet, but I, I'm almost kind of hoping it's something a little bit nefarious like that, where it's not necessarily actually this resurrection of Steve Trevor and we're going to have to watch him die or disappear or whatever it is again. Um, but that maybe this is something that's meant to sort of throw off Diana in some way. And, and actually, Kendra, you, you mentioned Zatanna and one of my first thoughts reading that it was going to be this magical artifact is like, do, would this have the potential for a Justice League dark tie-in in the future? Um, you know, because Patty Jenkins seems to be really interested in all of Wonder Woman's mythology. So I wonder if at some point that will get brought in. Um, but as far as the book, it is really, really cool that there's, you know, sort of this secret that kids who read the book will know that they're, you know, like you were saying, their parents going to the movie won't necessarily have that information. Um, but I just hope from my first read of the article, I was kind of like, so are they saying they're just not going to explain exactly how Steve Trevor's back or so I mean as long as as long as the loose ends are tied up and as long as we have you know kind of a satisfying ending I'm happy but I, I do agree that they do tend to kill off and bring back characters a little often 
And I mean, it's like the running joke in comics. Nobody stays dead. There is pretty much no character who has actually never come back ever. Um, yeah, so I, I have to, I guess, just trust. And especially Patty Jenkins has proven herself so well as, as you know, the, the director of Wonder Woman and as someone who really cares about the storytelling and this mythology. So I'd like to trust that whatever his purpose for returning is, it's not going to be the sloppy, obvious thing that is really easy to believe it will be. So, I mean, we'll see. But my hope is that it's something just different than what we're expecting right now. So moving on, we have some interesting TV and streaming news starting with a very spoiler-heavy trailer for Lucifer Season 5 from Netflix. Um, Seth, what did you think of the trailer? Oh, it was really cute. (laughs) I mean, there's this adorable, sort of cheeky, did I do that, sort of uh, vibe that comes out of Lucifer that, oh, I did, didn't I? How naughty of me. And there's so much of that in this trailer. Uh, One, that he suddenly is back. Two, that he's not who we think he is. Three, Lucifer has a brother. Uh, Yeah, there's spoilers, man. So we're talking spoilers. I'm not hiding them. It's there on YouTube. Like, you're going to find out. So (laughs) unless you avoid this, hit that fast forward button and don't watch this trailer. But I really think that those spoilers are actually just the beginning, much like the story we were just talking about. Sure, that's what they're showing you, but it's always about what they're not. Why is it important? How much more fun can happen with it? And what does it mean when the two brothers finally get back together? Because based on this trailer, it looks like, well, to use a cliche, sparks fly. How about you, Kendra? I think I agree with with what what the the fans are saying that if they're willing to show this much in the trailer what could they possibly have up their sleeve because they're not going to give away you know they're not going to they're not going to give away the whole cow they're going to to do what what is best and that's to tease and that's exactly what we get is is this this lovely bunch of teasers in this trailer um but it, it does. It, it definitely wets the palate to see what they're going to bring and if if it's going to be as amazing as it seems like it is. I mean, the, the trailer is amazing. But like you said, if you don't want anything ruined for you because you haven't watched anything, don't watch the trailer. Don't do don't. it. Yeah. <laughs> don't do it. That's another one of those where it's like, just skip ahead. Just do the 15 seconds. Just skip. But it will be. It, it, it seems like they're gonna they're gonna do a lot of fan service this season for their for their base. So it's it's gonna be really exciting to see what they bring to the table. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I agree. Um, it's it definitely compared to a lot of trailers that I've seen. It it was spoiler heavy, but yeah, like you guys were saying, I mean that means that there just has to be something even bigger happening in the actual show. Um, and it is kind of like a a fun cheeky little brother versus brother face off so I I mean I've only seen bits and pieces of Lucifer but this makes me want to watch it more because there's there's something fun about it's almost like watching Supernatural there's something really fun about seeing biblical characters in a very different light and I, I mean the the 
angel relationship between the archangels versus Lucifer. It's interesting in the Bible. So I'm really, really excited to see how this plays out. Um, Yeah. And just, I, I am definitely a little bit surprised how much they were willing to give away, but I mean, they, they know what they're doing. It's not going to be a full, it's hopefully not going to be one of those trailers where they're telling us everything that's going to happen. Like I I have a friend who said every time he sees a, a trailer for a comedy movie, He's like, I, I never go see the movie because they basically gave you all of the good jokes in the trailer and everything <laughs> else is just filler. <laughs> so, I mean, we'll see, but I, I have confidence and it does look really, really good. <laughs> I hate it when movie reviewers tell you that and they're like, by the way, don't see this. All the funny stuff was in the previews. Everything else sucks. <laughs> You're like, oh, oh, it's and true. I hate it when that's true. <laughs> Right. And it and sometimes that does happen where I'm like, wow, I, I expected every funny joke and everything else was just meh. But <laughs> I have faith in Lucifer. I do. It's, it's so far it's managed to come back from the dead and keep going. So I, I just I don't think Netflix would fumble it in such a way. I was also curious what you guys thought about the fact that this is totally like the old uh, the tree of of uh, the knowledge of good and evil kind of thing. It's like here's a trailer, but don't watch it if you don't want the spoilers. Here's the trailer, <laughs> but you probably shouldn't go. <laughs> it's, it ties into and there's Lucifer like <laughs> apple eat the apple. and you're like oh come on man like way to play the type. <laughs> that, that's smart writing. If that is what they were trying to do, then kudos to them because they pretty much nailed it. <laughs> Oh, I mean, if I figured this out, then yeah, it probably it's it's probably really smart writing. And they're like, all right, let's see if you you figure it out. And I'm like, OK, but there's got to be something even smarter going on because I only figured out this part. So come on. Well, what, what, what's the other part? Like, you're right. Where, where's, come on. We're on to you guys. <laughs> it's going to be a dream or a flashback and everything that you've seen is not real. It's only a timeline of what might have been. Oh, oh God. <laughs> The comic book tropes just keep coming. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Uh. (laughs) To our our next piece of streaming news, Doom Patrol Season 2, according to actress um, Abigail Shapiro, who plays Dorothy Spinner, I was about to say that totally backwards, there was going to be another episode to Season 2 that we are not going to get to see as it is unfinished due to coronavirus shutdown. But it's mostly finished, so maybe we will get to see it. What did you guys think? Do you hope we'll see it, Seth? I do hope we'll see it. It'd be nice if they could take advantage of either folding it into the next season or using it as a um, an episode that points out something that we didn't know about because of how the season actually ended, but that can further enhance the story. Um, I I'm curious now what it contained. I was also intrigued by the fact that when we were lucky enough to sit down with April Bowlby, she mentioned this as well, that they were like a day away from finishing. And you know what I mean? It was like that feeling of like, what now? What do we do with this? Um, but bonus, it's Doom Patrol. So zaniness is just part of the package. Like if you do it right, you could just fold this back in in some neat way later and make it all make somewhat zany sense um or there could be some great material that you can piece out and use along the way as a series of 
uh, flashbacks or uh, something else that that uses hopefully the most of this episode in the best way possible. I think there's a lot of creativity involved. I think the the thing that that really sort of makes it interesting is we got this from Dorothy. Um, <laughs> and I'm sort of like, okay, so wouldn't that be like the best way to give up, you know, a little bit of information like that is we're like, we're going to, we're going to give it to this actor and we're going to see how people respond. Is it because she plays an 11 year old? Is it because, you know, however she presents it when she's telling this story, what I do like, though, is that there's a, a lot of potential still available. So I'm just really intrigued to see how they end up making use of it, because I have this feeling like Doom Patrol doesn't seem like they throw everything away. And even if they don't keep the whole episode, I feel like there's going to a lot there that can be used. How? Ah, that's the fun part and something to look forward to. Kendra, what was your take? I think I'm in the same boat. I mean, it can it can go either way. Either they're going to be able to still salvage what they did because, I, like you said, I don't see them leaving that on the ground floor and just being like, oh, well, we ended the season. It was a good enough ending. Let's move forward. I, I, I think that they're going to they're gonna try and utilize every bit of what they've done. Either that or it's going to be something like what they did with Firefly um, where – you know, the, the episodes that didn't get a chance to air will be something like a special feature on the actual to own um, box set for the season. That would be kind of nifty, too, if they were to just be like, oh, and by the way, a never before seen episode is on this. So all you have to do is purchase season two. But I mean, it, it would be cool to see it either way, whether they utilize it in, <laughs> in, in the trope of flashback or if they even if they just started out with you know, once once they're able to, you know, redo all and, and resume all of their, their shooting, whether they just give it to us as, a, as an in-between, between two and three. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I, I think my hope would be that they find a way to repurpose it and add it into the show. Because I, like you guys were saying, Doom Patrol is zany and bizarre. And for them to have an almost completely finished episode... That, that's just sitting there. It's, it has to be used eventually. I'd be fine with it being um, an extra as well. That's not a problem to me. I, it, it's unfortunate, though, that they didn't get to finish that. I would be so frustrated if I was working on that project. And it's like we had one day, especially if I was the person who, who wrote the episode or something like that. And it's like, ah, of course. But in any case, I'm sure they're going to use it somewhere. Um, yeah, and it, luckily this is comic book television, which means that all of the comic book tropes are available to them. They can flashback it, they can alternate reality it, they can, I, there, there's a lot of directions to go. Um, yeah, so I, I hope we do see it. And my hope is that it's just as wonderful and zany as the rest of the season. Um, it does kind of speak to how versatile these filming schedules are in the sense that they can end a season prematurely, even if it's just one day of shooting short and still come out with a good season and still be able to round everything off and have this uh, complete story at the end. So no matter where they use it, or I mean, maybe a Christmas special, like if we get Doctor Who about it. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm fine with anything. I just really hope we get to see it. 
And actually jumping right off that, our last bit of TV and streaming news, more of TV and streaming opinion, DC Universe has been not losing, but moving some shows over. Um, We have HBO Max and the CW now taking on some of DC Universe's shows, which kind of throws the entire future of that streaming service into question. Um, What did you think, Seth? Do you think we're going to lose DC Universe? Do you think it's going to get folded in somewhere? It's a really hard question to answer right now, unfortunately. I made a point, actually. It was weird. Last night, I was flipping through HBO Max and scrolled down to the bottom. And I I was watching some Samurai Jack while eating dinner because Samurai Jack is just always one of those great characters to inspire. And then I was scrolling through down to like DC uh, products that are carried on the platform. And I was blown away by how many duplicates there were, how much stuff that I saw, whether it was a lot of the animated content, uh, the original Superman movies, uh, so many things where I thought to myself, that's interesting. Why have so much of this from DC Universe on HBO Max? And what does that portend for the future? I'm, I'm struggling because the recent announcements make it feel like there is a, a shift away from the original content that DC Universe has been creating and farming it out to CW, uh, HBO Max. It's, it's difficult to know what's going on just by interpreting those moves. It's like, it's like you're on the court with a really good basketball player and he can do those crossovers and switchovers and behind the backs and you're between the legs and you're just trying to watch the ball. But with all this distraction, there's a there's a, you know, a confusion of like, where's this all going? And I know that there were a lot of budget issues that led to the ending of Swamp Thing. I know that there's been a really impressive budget used to create Projects like Titans, Stargirl, and there's been some concerns raised most recently with the announcement of Stargirl going to CW about whether or not the quality uh, will stay the same based on whatever budget limitations can exist with CW and concerns because sometimes when the budget comes into play, the special effects on CW are not nearly as strong. I do also know that everything I ever read that takes a factual look at comics reminds me and the reader that this is an industry it's about making the money that allows the industry and the company and the products to continue i i worry that there's something going on with dc universe financially that might be leading to these decisions but i'm also curious if there's something i'm not picking up on like this idea that DC Universe could be in a strategy of developing original content, launching it, and then doing something else with it. Why? I, I Honestly, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me at first. And then I, I try and think about, okay, is there something in residuals, contracts, shared ownership, wider distribution, something that pays off for them better financially to create, establish, and then move out in sort of trying instead of trying to sustain. But I'm again just doing my best to be a cookie. I don't think I'm the smartest cookie. And because of that, there's like this part of me that's going, 
man, if I was a little bit smarter, I could figure this out. Maybe. But the other part of me that's going, yeah, but what sort of comfort would that bring you? And <laughs> I'm only left with uh, varying degrees of questions and uncertainty. And instead of rambling through it, I'm really more interested to hear your thoughts, Kendra and Kelly, as well. How about you, Kendra? With this, this one's difficult. I mean, I, 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 if I have to do a comparison, I'm going to do it with Disney+. Plus. So with Disney+, Plus, Disney has been almost, you know, prioritizing bringing all of the things and the properties that they own back into the fold bringing them back from netflix from hulu from from all of the other different streaming services that have licensing contracts with them to bring it back to disney because that's where they want it and and with the original content like the mandalorian which blew up for disney looking at dcu it's 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 almost questionable because they're doing almost the opposite of what you see Disney doing. And it does it like with you said, it doesn't make much sense. Like I can't wrap my head around why they would be doing that because they have, they, why would it, it's almost like, why would you create a streaming service to house all of these wonderful things where, where viewers can gain access to not only comics that they may not have had had a chance to read or movies in the DC animated universe or you know the, the series themselves and they they are creating original content so it doesn't make sense why why they would just be submitting that out and to bring up specifically HBO Max I mean for example a partnership with them and Funimation you go to look at their Funimation selections and they don't give you the whole horse and cart. They give you like, I, I think when I looked at it last night, there's like 13 or 14, maybe a little bit more than that. There's only a few featured selections from Funimation where it's just like, okay, here's a taste of what you can get. If you want more, you need to come to Funimation. And it may be that they're doing something like that with these different streaming services by giving them access, but it just doesn't, for me at least, make business sense. Why would you give Stargirl to the CW? I mean, granted, yes, that's where we have Flash and Arrow and, and a lot of the other DC shows, but why would you take something that's doing fairly well and give it away? And the same thing goes with, with shows like Harley Quinn. I mean, Harley Quinn, we all know, Mad Love Quincast. We all know how wonderful and amazing and genius that series is. And it just, it doesn't make much sense to me unless they are getting some kind of, of payback with it going to, to HBO max to get a, a, a wider view range, to get, you know, some kind of royalties or dividends from it because they've already had it on the streaming service. It just doesn't make financial sense to me that you would create this, solid streaming service full of DC, you know, greatness and then kind of just give it all away. Like it just doesn't make much sense to me. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, this, this kind of worries me because initially when, um, you know, the prospect of, are they just going to get rid of DC universe and stick with the CW and HBO max? 
my first thought was, well, but the comics on DC Universe, that's part of, that's maybe the best part of the streaming service that you have this entire library of comics that you have access to. But then when HBO Max released that wonderful, punny, god-awful comic, um, my my next thought was, oh, they are preparing us for comics to be on here. They're totally getting us ready for this to shift over. And it makes me sad. Um, I mean, it's still just a guess right now, but I feel like that's the most likely outcome, that it is going to end up being this entire shift. But part of what I liked about DC Universe so much is not only do you have the shows, the movies, and the comics, but as a user, it's really, really great. Like I was able to go through their, you know, back when when the lockdown first happened and I had a lot of free time on my hands, I went through their entire comic library and added a bunch of books that I wanted to read or wanted to start to, you can make almost like a playlist of comic books. Um, so that concerns me because I'm like, so if that list goes away, do I have to do that all over again? Or is all of that going onto HBO Max is, I, I mean, there's just so many questions about where that kind of content goes. Never mind the fact that DC Universe also has a really strong um, community atmosphere where you can do watch-alongs and do, um, you know, different Q&As and polls and interact with other fans. That's that's part of the fun of it. Um, you know, and they have that really cool reward system where for just for watching and reading and interacting you can possibly win stuff. I mean, it's it, to me, it was a really, really fun service. And I'm already talking about it in the past tense because there's a part of me that's like, you love it, so you have to be willing to let it go. But I'm not willing to let it go. Um, You're preparing yourself. R- exactly. I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm <laughs> cushioning myself for the blow already. Because it just, it, when I saw that, that HBO Max comic, I was just like, yep, they are, this is what's happening. There is no way that they're subtly drawing all these ties to DC. And I mean, HBO Max cannot start producing their own comics. They proved that really well with the premise of the first one. So, <laughs> my assumption, <laughs> it, it has to be the DC books going over. So, uh, I mean, yeah, am I, like, I'm, am I going to lose all of my comic book lists on there? Will there still be, you know, kind of this open platform for fan interaction? I don't know. And, and that does worry me. Um, I mean, it, have you guys been able to use any of those features? Was there, um, you know, anything besides the shows and the movies that you, you thought was a lot of fun? There's nothing like the comic book catalog that DC Universe offers. There's simply nothing like it. I mean, at any given moment, I can be reading a story and remember another story arc that I want to follow. And I pull up the app, I punch it in, I add it to my collection, and I know it's there for me when I'm ready to go back and read it. That's a convenience that I don't think HBO Max can compete with. But there could be a split at some point, you know? There could be that decision of, okay, we house library catalog stuff on DC Universe and we create other things on HBO Max or, you know, properties. Because one of the things that I remember before DC Universe came out was I had a a neighbor who would tell me about uh, it was like Marvel Unlimited or something. I think he paid a hundred bucks a year and he had access to every Marvel comic. And that predated, preceded DC Universe. And initially, I honestly thought DC would eventually do something similar and that would sort of be the end of it. Right. And now or then, as we started hearing more about DC Universe, I was like, oh, my gosh, they're doing shows, they're doing movies like 
what what are we talking about now? Um, and I was unprepared for that. So there's a possibility that they tried to go really big. And now this is the adjustment process. It's been almost a year. Um, what's next? You know, how do you how do you assess yourself and then make your decisions for the future? Kendra, how about you? I mean, it's, it's almost an, an it's almost an Icarus situation. It, it really <laughs> is. They they flew too close to the sun, it seems like, because when they started everything and, and like you said, with with them having this plethora of material, I mean, and that's really what it is. It is a plethora. There are so, so much content. And it's amazing because for people who are fans, whether whether you're a fan of the comics, the animation, the, the TV series, the movies, I mean, it, it, it's all there. And it just doesn't, like I said, it just doesn't make sense that it, it, a year later now they're starting to be like, well, maybe maybe this wasn't there. And speaking of the rewards program, I have one tiny angry moment. So when I first found out about the rewards program, I was in love with it, especially because you had the opportunity to not only do these tiers, which I'm obsessive when it comes to gaming. So when I see the word tiers, it's just like a, a challenge <laughs> I have to do. I have to do it. But they had all of these great rewards that were there that ranged from pens from the Harley Quinn series to posters. And one of the things that caught my eye that I thought was absolutely exclusive to DC was the fact that you had the ability with these points that you earned from watching and reading, basically just doing what you love anyway, you had the ability to earn enough points to get these artist alley statues. There was a black or there was a, a white and gold Batgirl that was absolutely gorgeous, but that wasn't the one I had my eye on. I wanted the exclusive Harley Quinn series statue, and it was fifteen hundred or it was twenty five hundred points, and it was beautiful. And these these are things like the pins and the posters. You're ranging somewhere in the price range of fifteen to twenty bucks. Okay, so. It's cool, but it's something that you could absolutely buy online and you wouldn't even have to worry about earning the points. But these statues, these beauty, absolutely gorgeous, stunning, detailed things range in the ballpark of anywhere between $165 to $250, which is probably why they pulled them. But just knowing that you had the ability to earn something that was so exclusive, especially when it came to the artist alley variations of these statues was something that I think only Marvel could have matched them on. And they ruined it. They pulled them away and they're like, Oh, well the rewards program will update every once in a while, but you took away my end game. You took it away and I'm not okay with that. That makes me very upset and sad. Because I worked so hard to get that Harley Quinn statue, and it went away. So there's my one, my one cop out. And maybe that's what it is. Maybe they're 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 trying things, and they're they're seeing what the give and take is, where the fan base sits. But it feels like it's a it's a losing game for them to just give away their shows, even if it is to spread the fan base. Like I said, I I, I would have I would have rather seen them do something like with Funimation, where they, they just give you like their top hits to, to wet the palate and draw people in to DCU. It seems like that would have been a much better 
a better plan strategy than than just being like, okay, well here, take it. We're we're done with it. You can have it. But I, I guess that's where I sit. Yeah, absolutely. And it's I it it's it's funny that you know you said the thing you were trying to get with the award rewards program went away because I. I mean, I, I didn't aim that high. I was like, all right, screw it. I'll take the pins. But for some reason, the, the first day that I used DC Universe, I got an email saying, or not the first day I'd used DC Universe, but the first day that I'd used the rewards program, I got an email saying that I'd won something. So I responded to it and I got these uh, like DC bombshells pins. And they were really nice. cool, but I had no idea what I did to win them. So I was like, all right, I don't really have any points yet. Like I, I, I don't interact on this app all that much. And I still haven't figured out what I did to win those pins but then I actually did save up some points and try to get the Harley Quinn pins and I haven't like heard anything back about it whatsoever so I'm kind of like all right so on one hand I'll take it because I got a bunch of free pins for no reason two months ago but also I kind of want my other Harley Quinn pins so I'm (laughs) it's it's a bizarre system in a way like there there's I like the fact that the rewards are there but to me, but I, I feel like exactly it has to work and it has to be, especially if, you know, because I saw the statues you're talking about. And I remember looking at that and going, oh, God, I'll never get enough points. Like, let's aim low. 800 points for some pins. OK, <laughs> like I, I didn't take the ambitious route, but if I had, I'd be furious right now. Well, and that was the thing that was what really upset me the most, I think, was. Like, like I said, when I, when I go into something, I go into it quite obsessively. So I went down to it and I broke it down. I was like, okay, so if I read this comic, that's 15 points. If I watch this episode, that's 20 points. And I, I work overnight. So for me, going through an all-nighter just reading comics wasn't a big deal. I went through the JSA lineup like it was nothing. But what killed me was not only did they limit your ability to, to earn rewards... Because they capped you off at a certain amount. I think it's like 200 points. And then you had to wait a week before you could earn any more. Which that part was rough. Yeah. But I was like, okay. Where are the statues at? Like, I've worked all this this way. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm at like 1595 on the points. And I was there. I was ready for it. And then it was just gone. And I think that's another thing. Like I said, that it really fits into the Icarus. They had all of these great, brilliant ideas... But I don't know if they necessarily were able, were ready to execute them as quickly as they were trying to. And maybe that's something that's leading a little bit to the downfall because they went into it with all of these great ideas and all of these wonderful things that they wanted to do, but they didn't worry about how to execute them or how to keep them up. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I wanted that Batgirl statue too, and I'm at 15 something and change, and I'm like, really? Right when I was like a week or two away, you started doing the capping thing, which screwed me, and then yes. now I can't get enough points, and I wanted that statue. I saw that Batgirl, and I was like, I am getting that statue. That is a cool <laughs> statue. I will work towards it. And I was the same way, like, put in the time, commit, and then suddenly, like, I would get the, I got the notification, like, sorry, you can't earn any more points today. And I was like, what? what and they're like yeah we're working on a system where now you can get 35 in a day but that hasn't happened yet and i was just looking at the app and according to it uh pardon the squeaky chair but <laughs> it just said to me when i was clicking on it um i went to redeem 
And when it loads, it says at the bottom of the redeem your tokens, sort of there's three paragraphs. And the last line says redemption promo codes must be used on or before 925.20 unless otherwise specified. I don't remember that. And I don't think the statues are coming back in time for 925.20. So there's a part of me that's looking at these 1500 you know, tokens I've earned and going, okay, what's going to be there that I care about spending on since you took away the thing I wanted. So right. uh, I'm, I'm an echo on there because it's like, look, I put in the time you should have something because otherwise it's like when one of those online streaming services and you're like, Oh yeah, you can purchase movies and stuff. Oh, they folded. Well, where'd that library I invested in go? What? <laughs> Sometimes right. and- or not. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, it, they, they had things on there where they were like, you know, this will keep your eyes here because it'll update. And I'm like, OK, well, maybe that means that they'll bring it back. You know, it'll come back. So I've been keeping an eye on it. But I mean, to be completely honest, well, yes, it is cool to see the limited edition posters and and to see the pens for the different series. You already showed me like this really cool thing that I did want. I don't, I don't want the, the Cupid doll. I want, I want that <laughs> statue. Yeah. I, uh, I used to bartend and I remember when I was doing it, I once told somebody, don't show me how good it is and how much money we can make in a given night. And they were like, why? And I said, because I'm either going to want or expect that every night afterwards. Don't right. show me what's possible because otherwise I'm going to be asking, why aren't, why aren't we getting that? What's the problem? And oh that I'm not a nice person. <laughs> well, that and their, their little follow-up to it was when they, when they first took the statues away, and I just looked at the rewards, and I don't even see this one as a reward anymore either. When they first took the statues away, they kind of tried to supplement what they did with putting the, the money off coupons that you could purchase on the DC site so that you could have like $20 off your purchase or $25 off your purchase. These are $100 stat- $100 statues. Why would I be okay with getting $20 off when I could have got the statue? Yeah. <laughs> I mean I hopefully I don't I don't even know what to hope for with it anymore because if it is moving to HBO Max, I feel like we're going to lose the rewards program completely. Right. But then, yeah, it's it's just not fair because and it's like going to the arcade as a little kid and you try to get as many tickets as possible because you want the bike and you know you're never going to get the bike. But that, I mean, that's always the most fun thing is being like, oh, do I have 50,000 tickets yet? No, only 20. OK. And it's like, but if you take the bike down, then why is anyone even going to the arcade at that point? So it's like, well, I can have another plastic ring, but who needs that? Right. Like, who needs all this candy? (laughs) Exactly. I mean, I hopefully whatever is in the future for DC Universe, they I I mean, I don't I don't know. Hopefully it's positive. Hopefully us fans don't end up getting the short end of the stick here. Um, Get your stuff together, DC. Exactly. (laughs) Just just get it together. (laughs) So with that, we're going to take a quick ad break and then come back with what started it all the comic book news this is seth singleton from dc comics news here to tell you about the spinner rack each and every week dc comics publishes so many great books it can be hard to decide where to invest your time and money 
And that's where the spinner rack comes in. The spinner rack is my honest attempt to rate, review, score the top five books from DC Comics each and every week. How can you listen? It's easy. All you have to do is go to your favorite platform, subscribe to DC Comics News Podcasts, and wait for the new episode to load up. Join me each and every week as I sift through the best from DC Comics and pick my top five books. Can't wait to share them with you and to hear your scores when you share them with us right here on the DC Comics News Podcast. First, there was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I am the Knight. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones. I am the Knight. Hello listeners, this is Tony Farina from DC Comics News and an occasional guest on Comics in Motion. I'm pleased to announce a new show called Indie Comics Spotlight. Each week, my guests and I will be taking a deep dive into a current title or a classic graphic novel from a publisher other than the big two. Consider this show the best of the rest. My hope is that we'll bring new readers to independent comics and give old readers a chance to share their thoughts. Join me each week in the Comics in Motion feed in your favorite podcast catcher. Why, hello there. I'm Seth Singleton, and I'm here to tell you about Mad Pup, a Harley Quinn cast. Three, two, one. Harley Quinn? Harley f***ing Quinn? What have we learned from this crazy show? Making bat shark repellent relevant since 1966. Oh, look, Ogre. And we've gone completely off the rails. I hear the bat signal. Shut up the bat, I'm nuts. I definitely do not f*** bat. In need of an adult-sized nemesis. Humans make good fertilizer. You can't f*** with Lois Lane. For f***'s sake. I'm a damn good cop. Lot of lasers. Mmm. Educational and informative. The DC Comics News Podcast Network presents Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast. (laughs) Back to you, Seth. So, tell us your thoughts. We'd love to hear from everyone out there. Or not. That's really up to all of you. F***ers. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the DC Comics News Podcast, episode 79. I'm your host, Kelly Gaines, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Kendra Hale and Seth Singleton. And we're just about to dive into the comic book news, starting with a very, I I think, exciting story. Um, DC is introducing a book called Rorschach Number 1, and it's going to be a 12-issue maxi-series by Tom King after the events of Watchmen, and not necessarily focused on the actual character of Rorschach, but around a, a more loose idea with some really interesting inspiration um seth what'd you think wow first off uh anytime you offer up a tom king maxi i'm like all right what do we got here because i'm probably gonna want it i love mr miracle i'm you know absorbed with every issue of strange adventures 
I, I, I think the guy has a real knack for understanding how to to make these 12 issue maxis into something far surpassing what we've experienced so far. But focusing on Rorschach is a really interesting approach. And what I like about the character is it continues this vein of thinking that Tom King has offered, which is that each person sees himself in more than one way. And depending on how many ways you see yourself, you can be the hero, the villain, the nice guy, the jerk. Rorschach was never a nice guy. Well, maybe a little bit. But for the most part, he was a broken man who took on an identity that allowed him to kind of exercise his demons while at the same time taking out his anger on what he didn't like around him. This concept, though, for the story, the idea that a pair of assassins try to kill the first candidate to oppose current president uh, Robert Redford. And then we end up doing this like through time, uncovering the identities, the motives. This is a really interesting approach. It also feeds into one of his other strengths, which is he enjoys that psychology of somebody trying to understand somebody else, of unwrapping the mysteries that go with each person, especially a figure as mysterious as Rorschach. So I, I, I like a lot of the ideas that they bring up in here, especially the one that's like, hey, uh, this guy isn't a hero. <laughs> he spoke a lot of truth. He said some hard things. He might have, you know, dressed like a detective, but he wasn't someone who was trying to be an example for others to follow. He was trying to be that sort of annoying voice that's saying, I won't let you forget what I know and I'm going to make you answer for it. That really falls into Tom King's strengths. I really am intrigued by the collaboration that he's chosen with Jorge Fornes. I think I think uh, I think there's something very intentional when it comes to who he has on an art team for a project. I mean, I, I get it. Sometimes there's what you have available, but what he's done so far has shown me this really long form approach to each project, to uh, the message, the style and how he's going to accomplish that. Knowing all of that, I'm really intrigued by it. And I can anticipate that for 12 months, I will be sucked into every issue. Kendra, how about you? I'm looking so forward to seeing what they're going to pull out with this because they've are, they already said that they're going to keep it very political. They're going to keep it very raw, which is nice considering that they're following up on, on the actual Watchmen TV show. Um, but one of the, one of the lines that caught me and is probably going to be the reason that I want to read this aside from the love for Watchmen and Rorschach is that it's called Rorschach, not because of the character Rorschach, but because what you see in these characters tells you more about yourself than about them, which means that there is going to be a psychological game being played where you're going to not only as a reader be able to emerge yourself in this world, but you're going to find relatable traits which is an amazing thing to do. And it, it does call back to what at the heart makes Watchmen so absolutely marvelous. Um, with Rorschach, I mean, I'm, I'm curious to see what they're going to do with it being 35 years later in the setting. And, you know, this, this man who had an ultimate death 
is back to life. So we're looking at you, Wonder Woman. But <laughs> it, it, this is the trope show. I mean, it, it really is. It's it's one of those things where it's just like, okay, Rorschach had the ultimate death. There is no one who has read Watchmen who can deny that. He was, it was ultimately shocking. It was visceral. It was beautiful in every way. So to see them not only bring him back, not as an ideal, but actually bringing the character back, that and we're getting almost a Marvel's feel because you're not seeing it from any of the anti-hero or the hero point of view. You're getting this story told to you from the point of view of a detective who's trying to unravel everything and understand what's happening. It's going to be an interesting ride. And for the Black Label series to see the price point set at $4.99 versus the typical $7.99, $9.99, that's going to be what catches me. Because for you to deliver a story like that and still make it affordable, and, and obviously with names like Tom King in it, I'm here for it and I'm ready. So just give it to me already. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I, I got to echo both of you guys. I am very excited for this. and. I like kind of this idea that um, King seems to be running with that it's coming, this story's coming from an angry place where it's, uh, we're angry. There's a lot of stuff going on right now. And this is almost like an artistic release for that. And on top of that, it it ties so perfectly into Rorschach as a character. And he, he might just be the perfect character to experience sort of modern culture at this time. Because there is so much anger. He is such a, a I mean, ju- just filled with rage. And in in Watchmen, at, at least when I was reading it, I feel like there was a, a big part of me that sympathized with him, that liked him as a character. But as time has gone on, um, and especially after seeing the TV show, it definitely highlights how readers and fans can take his message and or not that it was a particularly good message I mean he was in a lot of ways just like cold-blooded murderer but it can get super perverted to turn into this overall hatred of society that just it, it it's violent and not productive um so to see King taking this stance of, you know, we're angry and frustrated, so we're turning it into a book, we're turning it into something that people can read and connect with, and draw on a character that also experienced a lot of anger and frustration with society, but handled it in a really wrong way, it is interesting. And that's one of the downsides of, you know, a, a book like Watchmen, is it, symbols like that can be really, really perverted and misconstrued by by fans and readers um, if it promotes something, you know, with, with Rorschach being kind of violent and against everybody. It, it can turn into this sort of opposite idea where you're not looking at him and seeing all of the things that he got wrong and seeing where he, you know, wasn't what he set out to be and, and almost more of idolized that kind of crappier side of him um and we definitely see that from who wears the Rorschach masks in the tv show it's very on the nose for I think a lot of the ways that we're sort of seeing the world change right now um so I it's definitely 
going to be an interesting ride to see what it is that King really tries to say. Um, and, and what we get out of it as fans, because I I've seen, you know, in the news recently that even with, um, something like the Punisher symbol, that that's a symbol that's come up in, in some, uh, controversial areas and Marvel's been like, you know, please stop using our character's symbol. And you know, what, what happens when we start to see characters symbolize something that they weren't meant to mean and how do we bring it back to the comic book community and retell the story? And I think that's a lot of what's going to happen in this book. So I'm really excited to see it. I agree with you fully. Like that's something I didn't even think about because not only with Punisher, but look what happened with V from V from Vendetta. I mean, that one, that it took on a life all of its own, and it's absolutely possible that we could be looking at something like that. Yeah, yeah. So, I I mean, I love Tom King. I'm more than confident that this book is going to be something we're talking about for a really long time. Um, and actually, it's it's funny. I was talking to a friend yesterday who was mentioning that she she's always wanted to get into reading comics, and she's like, I just don't know where to start. Like, if I went into the store and wanted to start reading Spider-Man today or Wonder Woman today, I, I wouldn't know what to pick up. And she was like, so how, how does continuity work? Like, how does <laughs> characters come back and they leave and there, there's more than one title? And I was like, ah, crap. This is, the, this is the question that no one really knows how to answer because continuity works however they want continuity to work. <laughs> but my follow-up was, you can find these really great miniseries that are, you know, six issues, 12 issues, and you can read it from start to finish. And it, it's manageable. It doesn't have to tie into the entire comic book universe. Like, you, you'll be fine with one of those. So well, once I read this, this might be one of the books I push in her direction. Like, okay, start, start here, maybe. <laughs> so moving on into our next bit of comic news, um, there has been a creative team change up for Flash, and apparently the last issue is going to have a mother of all cliffhangers. Seth, what did you think? Are you excited? Uh, definitely excited. I I love a good cliffhanger. So far, we've seen quite a few in comics where we've gone, did they just do that? Did they really just do that? I mean, Heroes in Crisis comes to mind, uh, among others. Um, and with that comes this, you know, passing of the torch. I've liked Joshua Williamson, and I've enjoyed what he's done with the character. So I'm, I'm curious to see his run coming to a, a close, but also the fact that it's being um, handed off to a writing artist combo like Kevin Shinnick and uh, Clayton Henry. Um, I'm intrigued for the fact that I'm also caught in this strange place where I'm having trouble, and I mentioned it once in, in a chat with some of the other guys, that I'm having trouble keeping up with who I need to be paying attention to. Um, Flash is someone who I, I love reading, but I was reading Flash Forward until I realized that there was some history about Scott Lodell that I didn't know about. And when I did, I really struggled with continuing to read the series. I'm finding the same issue now with stuff like Batman's Grave, uh, with the the announcements and the revelations that have come out about Warren Ellis. There was always this part of me that was like, man, if I dig about Joshua Williamson, am I, am I going to find out something I don't want to know? Um, and with Lobdell uh, ending his run on 
Red Hood, the outlaw. Like, there's this part of me that's seeing this shift that's going on and asking if it's happening just because, asking if it's happening for other reasons, wondering if it's a safe time to hop on. It, it's confusing uh, at times because I'm I'm lost with this thing of like, am I gonna am I gonna question Kevin Shinnick joining uh, the book? Um, is there something in his history that's going to make me question whether I can keep reading it afterwards? But for the characters themselves, I, I love these stories. I, I, I'm a big fan of uh, the trickster. He pulled a fast one on the flash and he, he pulled off one of the best uh, robberies, I guess you could call it, and then escaped. But then shifting into the new storyline with alchemy alchemy the alchemy stone there's a lot of fun stuff there and these covers are just stunning i mean uh the one with the green uh line sort of behind him with the yellow uh, lightning swirling is amazing and then the alchemy one with the kill flash i mean this is all really cool stuff there's a part of me though that's just hesitant for the feeling of like tell me it's just because joshua williamson ended his run he was a good guy that I know of. He didn't do something I'm going to find out later about and dislike, and that it's just the passing of a torch. Because when I look at the ending of other runs like Red Hood Outlaws and knowing what I know now about Scott Lovedell, it's like, okay, is that why it's happening? Is this a changing of the guard? Are there other changes that are happening? Are they all for the right reasons? Are they all for good reasons? So, I want to be more excited about it. I've got this other shoe dropping feeling, though, that I'm hoping will eventually pass with time and with no more revelations. But it's kind of confusing watching these transitions of teams because I want it to be simply because it's time for a new team to take over. And I don't want to find out it's because there was a problem. So maybe it's the climate, maybe it's the the previous announcements that have preceded it, but I thought this would be a really easy question to or story to respond to. And suddenly as I'm talking, I'm like, why did it get so confusing suddenly? Why is it that I have to wonder about who's still working in the industry that either A, shouldn't be, or B, I should know more about? And C, how does that affect the books that I'm reading? Because it it challenged me when it was with Flash Forward. It's, it's challenged me with... Uh, uh, Batman's Grave and Red Hood and others. So I want this to just be for the right reasons and be a good thing. I think I was rambling a lot and now I just need to pass the mic to Kendra. Kendra, tell me your take and help. <laughs> well, but I mean, I don't even know if I can help because you raise very good, good points. I mean, there's a lot that's been coming out when it comes to people stepping forward about the way that they're being treated, not only in the, the big industry, but also in, in indie comics as well. I mean, and these are, these are absolutely factors that I feel should be taken into account because as Steve said, you know, and he says it with absolute, you know, conviction, these, the, finding out these things about your heroes and the, you know, don't meet your heroes is, it's crushing because you love the world that they've created. You, you have love for the, the characters that they have within, within them. And it's just like when you find out these horrible things about who they are as a person, it really taints not only the storyline, 
but your enjoyment for what you've been reading or what you've been, you know, experiencing throughout your journey with them. So from my side of things, I hope that the passing of the torch is just that because looking at, at the big main storylines that are going on right now, Flash is not the only one that's having the torch being passed. Uh, Sam Humphreys and Sammy Barcy are actually stepping down from Harley Quinn with issue 75. And then after that, it's going to be up to somebody else to take over, over the, you know, the, the Cupid of crime. And we'll see what happens with that. But I mean, I, I fully understand it. I fully get not wanting it to be because of something that's in the background or some skeleton that's in their closet that they don't want to come out because it's going to affect the overall product. So, I mean, when it comes to that, I'm, I'm right there with you, Seth. But when it comes to The Flash and this cliffhanger, and we're again in Tropeville, and I feel like I'm, just, I feel like I'm, I'm sin cinema because I keep calling these out, and I feel horrible about it, but it's really hard not to. Because it's it, you could you could basically have a grab bag of any character and it's gonna be this is a cliffhanger or what happens next next time on Dragon Ball Z. I mean it's just it, it's it's a continuing <laughs> trope. And, oh Goku. <laughs> right, oh Goku. Um, but with Flash, this one for me, just by going off of the explanation that we're seeing, and of course seeing the trickster come back. It gives me memories of Rogue's Revenge, and that's absolutely one of my favorite favorite storylines of Flash Universe of all time. Nothing beats it for me. But it almost makes me wonder if they're going to try to go down that lane again, and I really hope that they don't, because for me that would kind of be like, okay guys, you've been here, you've done it perfectly once, don't do it. Like, don't even be tempted, don't open the box, leave it alone. But, I mean, these guys, like you said, Clayton Henry and, I'm going to mispronounce his name, Kevin Schnick, both of these guys are well-experienced in the DC Universe. They've, they've had their hands in it, they know how the story goes, and they know how to tell one and show one in beautiful ways. So I look forward to seeing what they're going to do with the trickster and what this cliffhanger could be. But I'm telling you now, if it's what I think it is, we're going to come back on this show, and I'm going to be like... So, told you so. Kelly, what's that? Trope Bill. That's our next. That's our next T-shirt. Trope Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Oh boy, that's cliffhangers. I mean, I love a good cliffhanger, but I also, I mean, yeah, it's we're right back to trope Bill. Um, and and Seth, going going off what you started with, I think. My best example of, or two actually solid examples of finding out that someone that I really looked up to is kind of a terrible person. Um, I like my favorite books when I was little because my mom loved them too. Were all the the Wizard of Oz books, and in one of my college courses, we read an essay by the guy who wrote them, Frank L. Baum, and he was super, super into the idea of Native American genocide. He was excited about it. He promoted it. And I have such a hard time going back and reading the books that were my favorite books as a kid or, uh, or, or even watching the movies. And I honestly haven't told my mom yet because she still loves it so much. And I'm like, oh, I just can't take this from you. And also finding out, you know, 
probably around the same time, actually, um, about Bob Kane kind of being a horrible human being to Bill Finger with, uh, you know, regards to who got credit for Batman, who got paid for Batman, um, you know, Bob Bob Kane getting to attend premieres and live sort of this lavish celebrity lifestyle while the guy who helped him create everything was dying alone in an, an apartment he was going to be evicted from. I mean, there's there's a lot of the stuff that you find out and it just sucks the fun out of the worlds that you start to enjoy. Um, so I, I mean, as of right now, I try to keep a really, uh, I, I guess, hesitantly optimistic viewpoint when it comes to the new teams coming in because I my hope is if they're kicking an old team out or if another team is stepping away for potentially nefarious reasons then I mean my my hope is that they then would make sure that whoever's coming in to replace them is a good person is you know actually worthy of writing a superhero because that's part of what it definitely ruined it for me with Bob Kane was looking at, at, you know, the entire history of Batman and going, you know, this is a character that fights for justice and getting and, and showing the truth and getting to the bottom of things. And he was willing to live a lie. He was willing to have a lie engraved on his gravestone just for the fame and the money. And it, it just makes me look at the entire history of Batman in a sense of it's like wow this really really shady dude was behind it and so my hope with with this switch up with Flash and you know big mysterious cliffhanger or no big mysterious cliffhanger is that at the very least we're putting the idea out there that it doesn't matter who you are or how much power you have or how good at your job you are if you are a terrible person if you're using that power and that talent to do bad things or to make other people's lives more difficult that's not okay and the fact that you're talented and the fact that you've told a good story in the past doesn't justify it um so yeah i i have optimism at this point but it's it's definitely in the back of my head and i mean it is with everything because i i think there's a part of me that avoids going back and looking at my favorite stuff from when i was a kid or when i was younger because I, there's a little part of me that's like, oh, but what have I learned about this person since the history class version I got in middle school? But I mean, we'll, we'll see. We At this point, we can only hope that the right people are getting into these positions of, of telling hero stories. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I, you, you brought up a good memory, and I'm so sorry, Seth, for cutting you off. Um, All good. But you brought up a really good memory because it's a really, really tightrope walk that you have to do between loving the creator and loving the creation. And that's also something that we're seeing a lot of today with, you know, with, with cancer cult or not can- with, yeah, with cancel culture. Say that five times fast. <laughs> but for me, I think the one that sticks out the most in my mind is, is like you. It has absolutely nothing to do with comics. It has to do with, um, a book I discovered, and it was it was called Mist of Avalon, and it was the story of the Arthurian legend, but it was told um, from the side of all of the female protagonists that were in in the story of King Arthur, the voices you don't normally get to hear from, and it was this immensely different take on it because with every other legend that you get from from King Arthur, 
it's always told about how King Arthur was this great man and how Merlin was this wonderful magician and and the story of Mist of Avalon was completely different from that and it, it absolutely struck me because the writer came from a very feminine equality view and it wasn't until later in, in life when I went back to go read them again that I realized that she was an absolutely terrible person. Um, her name was Marion Zimmer Bradley and she was completely abusive to her daughter like to a horrible degree like we're talking worse than Annie I mean and it, it completely tainted the entire series for me because I was like okay but how can you as a writer as a creator speak up and put women in this 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 point of power but be so absolutely terrible to your daughter like to the point where you know you shouldn't have been a mom basically and for me I had I had to get rid of all of her books. I couldn't do it. I could not separate between the creator and the creation at that point because all that it would do for me would be to taint the series. So, I mean, that, that's really where we're at as as fans, as as enjoyers of of the written word, of of the the visual word is we actually have to pick our battles now based on what we know and what's coming out about people. You know, especially like, for example, I mean, you guys obviously remember the James Gunn controversy where it was tweets from years ago where it was, you know, a different. It, it, I hate to put it that way because it's not an excuse, but it was a different time where humor was completely on a different level than it is now. It's not as culturally aware as it is. And people are having having to consist, consistently see that words matter your actions matter regardless of the time frame and i mean do you guys see that being being way more prevalent in our in our culture now yeah absolutely um and it's i feel like there's almost this feeling of paranoia that people get with oh, oh my god have i ever said anything terrible but the there there's such a strong difference between you know, I, I tweeted something I shouldn't have tweeted five to ten years ago versus I, you know, have actively used my platform and used my position to be just crappy. Or, or you know, like we, with what you were saying about the, the writer who shouldn't have been a mom, I mean, something like that. That's not just, oh, I made one mistake and had a moment of you know, a moment of ignorance or a moment of stupidity, that's you are not a good person. And I think that has to be kind of the line for fans is, is like with James Gunn, it's are we looking at someone made a joke several years ago that, you know, it doesn't fly now and they shouldn't have said and we need an apology for? Or is it a situation where they are just genuinely doing terrible things? And it, those things are starting to come to light. And in, in that case, when it's something with, you know, violence or or any kind of abuse or, um, you know, racism or sexism or something like that, that's not something that can be ignored, really. That's more of, you know, you have a, a pattern here of not using your platform positively or of pretending to but behind the scenes you're not the person that you're portraying yourself to be um so yeah it's it's a hard line to draw as fans seth what do you think i do think it's a hard line to draw um i've 
you know, Ralph Dibney was one of my favorite characters. I love Elongated Man. I, I'm one of the few people that collected the Elongated Man miniseries from the 90s, which most people don't even know there was an Elongated Man miniseries. Um, I'm with you. Right? And it was such a good series. Uh, it was, And I always loved the relationship. So when suddenly I'm finding out that the actor from Flash, who portrays him, uh, said a series and and this is something to you know support what you were saying kelly is it a pattern uh, a pattern of some really ugly things on twitter uh, i think for the most part and is being held accountable you know and it, it crosses so many lines look my wife and i were on a road trip the other day and we're we're bopping along to uh classic michael jackson and then at some point i think it was me said so at what point do we separate the innocence and joy and the beauty of these songs that we love from the person we've learned so much about? Neither of us had a good answer. I don't think either of us had the right answer. But I was stuck with that feeling of knowing what you know and then choosing what to do about it. How do you separate the artist from the accusations? How do you separate the artist from the actions? How do you clarify in your mind your positions on abuse or any other action that you wouldn't accept? But now that you know about an artist you support, follow, care about, enjoy, you have to make a decision about how you're going to respond or react. And there's too many examples of amazing, talented people who were also terrible people and people who made honest mistakes and got caught just being stupid, ignorant in the wrong moment and publicly. I don't know if that changes the immediate feeling. I think it can change the sort of long view approach where you, again, start looking at the moment and then the moments that preceded it or came after it and what the pattern was and then what you choose. But I think at some point it comes down to a personal choice about what to do. You know, Kendra, when you mentioned Miss of Avalon, I, I loved Marion Zimmer Bradley. I, I loved learning more about the Arthurian take. And I loved this approach that showed these amazing women doing something that was so far unrecorded or unconsidered. And then, yeah, this disclosure that this was not a good person. This was not a healthy person. This is a person who caused uh, a lifetime, if not more, of damage and I'm caught because I I almost wish that there was a very comprehensive list that I could click on online and it would tell me everyone I needed to know about, about everything I liked so that I could make judgments from the get-go. And then I find myself going, well, that's great. That's like somebody telling you that everything's safe before you walk out your front door. That's never how life is. So I'm just caught with this this question and... I appreciate you guys taking the time to, you know, deal with the fact that I brought up some of these <laughs> well, points but that you're, are, you're are part right. of it, but also, you know, they were a tangent in addition. So I appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. It's just this like, 
I don't want to take away, but I feel like we're constantly adding to this conversation and we're just including more people each time we do. And also uh, what that means as we do. So I'm I'm hopeful, but there's also times where I'm like, I want to be on message. And yet at the same time, this feels like the messages are just getting blended. You know, like you can't not talk about it, you know. Uh, yeah. So and that's what I'm left with is it's it's become part of the conversation now and it's it's never going to leave. Um, there's this writer named Leslie Marmon Silko. She wrote this book called Ceremony. And there's this great scene in which all of the. Uh, the elders, the um, practitioners of magic from um, different nations around early America get together and they start doing a contest about who can weave the worst magic, the most dangerous. And then one of them goes through the process of talking about these land ravagers and these destroyers and pale flesh and how they'll come to the lands and they'll take everything. And then at one point, one of the, the those in attendance says like, please stop. It's too horrifying. And the other practitioner says it's too late. They're already here. You know what I mean? And it was this heartbreaking yeah. idea and yet at the same time, it was it was real. It was like the Pandora's box. It was like, it's part of the conversation now. You can't close the box. You can't not include it. Right. But I mean, for, for me, and I, I know we're spending a lot of time on this, but I think that it's, for me at least, it's important. Because it's one of those things where it's like, why, why have these conversations felt like they were so taboo before? when it feels like these are natural conclusions that fans should be asking and, and, and readers should be asking. Like, I mean, for, for the biggest examples for me, it's, um, I'm going to mispronounce his name and I'm sorry, but it's Lynn Ween and his whole concept with the killing joke. Alan Moore created an absolutely shocking visceral story that has become a pinnacle in the comic universe but he did so at the expense of Barbara Gordon. And there's there's really no way around that. And that's that's something that is still like it still ripples through to today. And I mean, for someone to I'm not going to say the quote because it, it cusses and I know we're not allowed to do that. But I mean, to cripple, you know, for him that to be his response to how to, to treat a character. It, it's almost like why why haven't these conversations been treated with more respect because look at how it, it's a definite it's a it's a point of view into the world of the creator to see not only how they view characters but it, it makes you question how they actually view for this example specifically how they view women in real life i mean it, the same thing could be said of the creators of harley quinn she was a throwaway character who was nothing more than a punching bag for joker who, who got upset and mad every time that she had a, had even an idea that was better than his. And it wasn't until just recently with Amanda Connor and Jimmy Palmiotti that we started to see Harley not only break away from that character, but now she's grown in leaps and bounds to the character that is not only standing on her own, but one that is seen as an individual and not as a red shirt mentality sidekick who's willing to take the domestic abuse. So for me, at least in summary, Seth, thank you for bringing it up because these are things that are important. And I think that they are questions that any fan should ask themselves when they're stepping into a medium 
whether it's it's questioning the creator or questioning their motives when it comes to a character, how far is too far when it comes to that? One day yeah. I'm hopeful for the answers, but I, I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for what you said. And I'm I'm just hopeful that, yeah, this is a conversation that does eventually lead to some answers, some resolution, some better understanding. Um, I just didn't expect it to happen from the flash door. <laughs> like I was like, I'm going to say this and this. And all I can see is that shock on my face when, when I learn different things about different people. And each one is just like, okay, you know, like it's a story about transitioning, but it could be a story about a lot more. And that's the other problem that's come up. And it's, it's a context that, can't be taken away anymore you know it can't be ignored and that's the other thing i think kendry what you brought up importantly is why were these conversations kept out because they were accepted it was just one of those things that was accepted famous people in different industries people of celebrity status have been allowed to get away with things and it was accepted and it's no longer as accepted as it was and it's becoming less accepted and the more it becomes less accepted the more it's going to be challenged, questioned, and hopefully done away with. But yeah, thanks for letting me air that one out, guys. Really appreciate it. Yeah, yes. And it, it's, like you guys said, it's an important conversation to have. Um, and it, so I'm, I'm going to move on into our next piece of news, which actually, oddly enough, ties back into a little bit of what we choose to change in light of things that were maybe not handled correctly in the past. Um, there is a cover change happening for Wonder Woman 764. And I mean, it's kind of silly looking at it, but the change could possibly tie into one of Wonder Woman's more controversial adventures. Um, Seth, what did you think of this? I was really, I mean, I looked at it, I looked at the differences and then I started asking myself the question of why this would be happening. And I think there's a lot of ways to go. I think uh, for starters, there's a little bit of a, a sort of visual cue that's going on by the, I mean, the scene for those who are guessing at what we're talking about, the cover shows Maxwell Lord and Wonder Woman sitting down in uh resort chairs it looks like with someone behind them holding drinks who also has a weaponized arm that reminds me a bit of like a mercy graves kind of thing wonder woman sitting on the left as we're facing them maxwell lord on the right and in the original cover lord is holding a pistol which appears to have like a silencer on it i think and then in the replacement image He's holding uh, something that looks like it's the, you know, the shape of a gun. But instead of there being a pistol at the end, there's a light. Uh, so first I was like, OK, well, displaying guns on covers has become uh, less popular recently. And the sort of like uh, allusions to violence and how guns are portrayed. So I wondered about that. And then I was also curious because with the flashlight, I was like, so is this supposed to be like a mystery treasure hunt? They're supposed to be on vacation, resort, whatever. And then it turns into something more. And immediately I flash back to an old Star Trek episode from The Next Generation way back when, when Picard's supposed to finally get a vacation and it turns into something much more. Uh, for any of you nerds who are with me on that one, bless you. I won't go any farther than that. And then, of course, there's the history between these two characters. And so I wondered if 
if there was something we could allude to from the fact that the fun in the sun is also uh, a lighter take on these two characters, considering a history in which Lord turned his powers against Wonder Woman and Superman and Wonder Woman was forced to snap Maxwell Lord's neck. Of course, nobody stays dead. Tropeville, here we are. And he's now back thanks to all the, the reboots and such. But I'm I'm wondering about it all because as I look at it, I'm like, hmm. So is this because of the fact that it was a gun? Is it because of something else you're doing with the story? I, I'm curious to see what else could be taken from it. That's why I'm passing it on to Kendra. Oh, my gosh. So this our previous conversation does immediately lead right into this one, Kelly. And. I agree with you, Seth. I mean, this one, it, it, it's a very subtle spot, the difference between um, what is what it, it does look like it's a silenced pistol to a flashlighty, laser gunny thingy. Um, but, I mean, there there is violence that is that is in the history of this, not only with, you know, Maxwell Lord shooting Blue Beetle in the head and, and you know, yes, in that that moment of cliffhanger dumb it did kill him but he came back so we're we're double two and oh for trope bill on this one but <laughs> i mean for me for me personally the way that i look at it is dc marvel the big guys have never shied away from bringing reality into their stories they've never had a problem with addressing the state of the world inside their comic universe and it's almost as if they're reading the reading the room, for lack of a better way to, to put it, and seeing that this is something that's heavy happening in our world right now. The the gun violence, the everything that's going on with Black Lives Matters, the, the the call for reform for police. I mean it's it's hard not to read into that that they're willing to change a character who is known to have these types of weapons and has obviously used them in the past. And switching that out for almost a Martian man or um, a Martian like ray gun from Looney Tunes. I mean, it's it's curious to see how they're going to change it, but and what 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 that change will have on the impact of the story within. But what strikes me more curious than anything is that DC didn't make a comment on the change. Really, they kind of skirted the issue a little bit by saying, "Oh, well." this was just an older original and we wanted to update it. It just strikes me as kind of odd that they wouldn't address more than that. Kelly, what what are your thoughts? Yeah, it's definitely odd. Um, Cause I think looking at the covers, when I saw the flashlight one, I was like, that is the most ridiculous thing I think I've ever seen. I mean, it just, it doesn't look, it, it doesn't look like a real not that I mean, it's a comic book, so there can be any kind of a, like Wonder Woman has a, a magical chain point, this chainsaw at this point. So I mean, fine, whatever. But the flashlight looks a little silly. Um, and th- there's part of me thinks, you know, okay, if you if you wanted to change it, it's fine. But couldn't we have put anything else in his hand that doesn't just look like you added a flashlight extension onto your silenced gun? Um, and it, it's a bizarre, it, it's figuring out where the line is as far as what we think we need changed and what we think we need censored. Because on one hand, I do get why 
Wonder Woman's past with Maxwell Lord is so controversial. And the fact that she did snap his neck, I mean, that is, it's one of the things you just don't think you're ever going to see Wonder Woman do. She's certainly, you know, fights and is willing to resort to violence, but it's rare for us to see her do something that that's that final and that, um, it, you know, graphic to look at in a sense. And the fact that he shot Blue Beetle in the head, I mean, it does, it's kind of like how it covers that reference back to the killing joke. I think this, this must've been five or six years ago now, but there was a Batgirl cover um, that was Barbara Gordon with the Joker standing behind her kind of, drawing this creepy smile on her face and she's you know half in tears and it's clearly this this reference back to the killing joke but fans were really upset because it was like you know Barbara Gordon's come so far and we weren't happy with what happened in the killing joke in the first place so do we have to keep bringing it back in this way um especially bringing it back with such a, a kind of victimized cover in Batgirl's own story um but as far as this change goes, I mean, part of comics as a whole is weaponry. Um, not even part of comics, part of superhero comics, because it, it has a lot to do with the lines that heroes are willing to draw. Um, you know, we, we see in Batman Beyond in, in the animated show that where Bruce Wayne draws the line is when he realizes he has to pull a gun on someone to get away and to save himself. And he's like, this is not what I'm going to do. I'm never going to be Batman again because that's not a part of who I am. So superheroes stance on guns and how that plays into our sort of social consciousness about gun violence is a topic that comes up a lot. So I think the idea of censoring guns completely in comics isn't necessarily the the smart direction to take here um and i think if they had changed the cover to something that didn't just look like a little flashlight ray gun add-on thing it might not seem like such a big deal you know if if they just put something else in his hand um but yeah it's it's a strange cover change and i definitely I don't know. I mean, I, I don't feel any sort of particular aversion to the original cover. Um, I'm not sure if other fans did, but at least personally, it didn't really strike me as something that, oh, my God, that's like offensive to my soul in any sort of way. But we are in the middle of a, a much larger social discourse in, the, in this country right now. Um, you know, again, coming back to police reform and and what that means for us. So, yeah, I mean, it's, the cover still looks fine. I just can't stand that flashlight thing that just looks so weird. It is very Looney Tunes. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a bigger conversation and we've seen these kind of changes have to happen in the past. I'm sure we'll see it again. So yeah, I guess it's, we'll just have to take it case by case. So moving on to our next bit of comic book news, Batman is getting a new costume in October, somewhat. Um, it, it is a, co- a costume that we're going to see before that, but it's coming in a different sense in October, possibly. Um, Seth, what did you think of the costume? It's very bright. It's it's really bright. That's the first thing that caught, you know, it's like, okay, uh you lose some of the element of surprise if you happen to glow in the dark. 
but I, I do like the touches on it. They feel very intentional. Um, I, I feel like overall it's going to be one of those things where this is just the surface and there's going to be a, a, you know, a bigger reason behind why this is here or, uh, or what it's trying to, you know, accomplish. Um, I did get a chance to pay attention to an inside tip from our good friend, Mr. Steve J. Ray, and took a glance at the uh, advance uh, issue number 95. And I like the way it's used there, but I was also intrigued because our editor-in-chief, Mr. Josh Rayner, let us know that while it is hinted at now, it plays this much bigger and important role in issue number 100. I can't tell what that is just by looking at the uh, the suit. Now it's it's you know the the illusions are made to it being uh, similar to the high tech ice armor of George Clooney's Batman and Robin costume without the nipples, and it must play an important role in what's described in number one hundred as a brutal no holds barred final duel eighty years in the making. That's a lot to live up to, as are many tropes. But um, <laughs> I, I look forward to the idea that, uh, right? Like, it's been 80 years in the making, really? Because in five years, it'll be 85 years in the making, and you're still going to be telling a story about these guys. So come on now. Um, but I, I, I like the approach simply because it's fun to see Batman take on a new version. I like when Lucius Fox plays around with things. And I'm curious to see how long it stays or if it becomes part of the rotation, because Batman has had a lot of iconic looks. Some he keeps, some he returns to, some are important for the moment. How this fits in is going to be really fun of enjoying these next five issues up to number 100. Kendra, what was your take? I think I'm probably the only one who doesn't see the Batman and Robin reference when I look at this costume. Because for me... It, it soothes my attention deficit of shiny because it is super shiny and it's really, really pretty. I don't know. Like you said, I don't know how well it's going to work because it kind of takes away the, the stealth approach unless it's like got some kind of feature where it, it helps him be invisible or camouflage like a chameleon against his background. I guess we'll have to figure that out as the story goes forward. But I mean, again, we're, we're kind of in Tropeville, but I mean, I really, really want to see them pull this out because the buildup that the Joker war has had it, it is monumental. I mean, I want to see, and I'm sure everyone who's a fan of it wants to see just what they have up their sleeves. That is going to be the pinnacle almost of, of this, 80-year war between Bruce Wayne and, and Jack Napier. I want to see what it is. I want That's what I want. And if this costume plays into that, or if it plays into the fact that we have this new villain that's going to be introduced with the Ghostmaker, I, I want to be in the room where these discussions happened. I want to know more about what's coming. And I guess that I just have to be a good little fan and be patient. And that sucks. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, um, I uh, off the bat when I first looked at this costume, I didn't like it at all for the I, for the exact issue that you both have had with it. It's really bright. 
it is not um, not the type of costume I'd expect to see the Dark Knight in. And I do kind of see the reference to Batman and Robin, but it doesn't strike me. I, I don't know. It just it's not a Batman-y costume to me. It kind of reminds me of the Signals costume in a lot of ways. Um, but it, again, it's it's hard to judge just on the picture. It doesn't necessarily tell us the context that the costume's used in. So, I mean, maybe this is just a point in the story where Batman has to be a symbol of light instead of a, a kind of creature of the darkness. I, who knows? It could go a, either way, I guess. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely wasn't a fan of shiny Batman. There's just something about that to me that's like, ah, uh, I mean, there goes all of your fun creeping out of the shadows and terrifying villains thing that at this point there aren't going to be any shadows. Gotham will see its first daylight ever. I, um, yeah, I just, I'm not a huge fan of the costume. It, it is very stylistically appealing, I guess, in a sense. It, it, it looks nice. It just doesn't fit Batman to me. Um, yeah, so we'll, we'll just have to see how it plays into the series, what role it plays, um, in issue 100, because now I, I kind of want to know what does it mean for a costume to play a bigger role down the line. Um, so yeah, we'll we'll see. There's there's a lot of stuff we're going to end up coming back to in this episode. <laughs> and moving right along, we have some fairly de- depressing news. Both Batgirl and or sorry, not both, but Batgirl, Batman. The Outsiders and Justice League Odyssey are all going to be coming to an end in October. Um, Luckily, Batgirl's going to be finishing with a gigantic oversized issue. But what did you think, Seth? Are you sad to see these titles end? I'm completely sad to see these titles end. I'm struggling with this announcement. I've seen a lot of struggle for the Batman The Outsiders title to be successful and there's been some pushback especially from uh, the creator of black lightning i do know that um i've been intrigued by the story so far and i was curious about the development of some of the characters but the ones that hit me the hardest are batgirl and justice league odyssey i i was unfortunately not able to help out as much but there was a period not too long ago where i was like i'll pick up justice league odyssey and review it I love that book. I love what they've done with characters like Jessica Cruz. I mean, her transformation has been one of the most original things happening in DC Comics. And she's such a great character that I want to just keep reading more about her. She's so determined. She's she's a lot of fun to read. So hearing that this story is coming to an end is disappointing. Now, it's not terribly surprising because the whole point of Justice League Odyssey was like, tied into the Justice Doom and and a lot of other storylines that have kind of come to a completion. So it, it's a question of like, yeah, you're trying to stop Darkseid, but you're always trying to top Darkseid. And how does this story actually tie into some of these bigger events that it almost feels like they've moved past the Justice League Odyssey team? So I, I can see where eventually it was going to have to come to a conclusion. I was kind of hoping it would just be the conclusion of an arc and the, the issue would the book would still get a chance to continue. And I'm still hopeful that uh, Jessica Cruz can continue on in another book. But she was the brightest light in this series. And I've, I've loved every minute of it. So I, I'm really disappointed to see it close. I 
I'm also just as much about Batgirl. I really love a title where she can define herself outside of the things that have happened to her, like we were mentioning with Killing Joke. So I want to see her continue in another way as well. Um, I heard a great theory put up by one of the reviewers of what about a Batgirl Nightwing series, which sounded just awesome to me. Um, and also about what other things could happen. And to be honest, I'd read Batgirl in another solo title, in another collaboration title. I'd love to see more of her and Jessica Cruz. And then with The Outsiders, I just started playing around like, Jessica Cruz and The Outsiders. Batgirl and The Outsiders. Jessica Cruz and... Okay, now I'm just getting all over the place. But... With this announcement, all I can hope for is better opportunities in the future and more great stories about these characters who I've really come to love. Kendra? I'm kind of I'm kind of in the same boat, especially with Batgirl. I mean, when it comes to the solicitation that they they're they're building up for her for for number fifty, I mean, they bring up a very very good point, and I, again, I hate I hate how many times the word trope has been used in this, this episode. It's become a drinking game. But <laughs> I mean, they they lead out with something that's actually an honest question that you could ask of any of the heroes of these titles, and that is, how much is too much? Like how. How much more of Barbara Gordon can we expect after everything that she's been through? And is is Gotham still going to be, in her eyes, a, a city worth saving? And it, it kind of leads back to earlier, in, way earlier in our conversation, when Seth brought up Heroes in Crisis, which if you haven't read it, please do yourself a favor and do it, because it's an absolutely stunning tale. But... It, it deals with a lot of the, the situations that are being brought to light in, in, the, in I, I believe, almost every single one of these books that are ending. And it's just one of those things where it's like, how much longer are are we willing to see these heroes put themselves on the line for really not much reward? And I, I just want to see them do justice to these endings, especially with Batgirl, because if they do if they do decide to have her hang up her mantle and we see someone else step into the Batgirl spotlight because Barbara Gordon is finally going to step down, then I would be fine with that. I would be fine with seeing her get a happy ending. I would be fine with seeing any of these characters get a happy ending because it doesn't happen very often in the comic book world. But I mean, it's just going to be something that remains to be seen when, when October hits. October is the month for everything. Like, I don't know if they all got into this boardroom and were like, every book is coming in October. That's <laughs> going to be when everything hits is in October because it's everything is hitting in October. I mean, we've got a couple more stories that are coming out in and, and October. I don't know if that was just where they were like, you know what? Everybody's going to have to be inside for Halloween. There's not going to be any trick-or-treating. Let's give them all the treats in October. I, I don't know if that was the plan, but... October is going to be a very, very busy month for DC. Kelly, what about you? Yeah, I, I think Batgirl is definitely, of these three, the one that I'm the saddest to see go. Um, especially, I, I think this Batgirl, and I, I was the biggest complainer when the 
Gail Simone Batgirl and uh or Batgirl run ended in um I think that must have been 2012 um but during the new 52 and when they switched over to Batgirl Burnside I was really really frustrated because I was really enjoying um you know sort of this this idea that Barbara's walking she's fine it's post the events of the killing joke but we're seeing her deal with PTSD and sort of step into this role of being a superhero again after having something terrible happen to her and I I enjoyed that title so much that it kind of put me off Batgirl for a little bit um and then coming back into it especially with uh Cecil Castellucci writing it it's such a good version of Barbara Gordon and I've had so much fun reading it I really enjoy the characters that that they've brought in and I mean my hope would be you know Kendra you bring up an interesting point that we don't see heroes get to have a happy ending very often because if there is one who deserves a happy ending it's definitely Barbara Gordon but there's this part of me that never wants to see her hang up the mantle because I enjoy her so much um you know, but then then it comes back to, well, one of Batman's biggest problems is that he just doesn't know when to walk away. It's Alfred standing there with his his plane tickets like, sir, I booked you a vacation. Sir, I, I booked you a lunch. Like, please do something else, anything else. And it's, you know, it, we don't see our heroes get to have sort of a break or get to walk away on their own terms very often. Um, and And in that case, Barbara Gordon really does deserve that. So I, I'm conflicted. There is a part of me that doesn't want to see this end and wishes that it would just keep going. But and especially considering we're we're talking about October. So we have several months for them to kind of get this together and really give all of these series the ending that they deserve. Um, and I, I definitely don't like seeing a, a series, whether it's a comic book or a TV show, something that kind of runs past its it, runs past its relevance or just runs out of ideas and is just going to go. I mean, if they found a, a solid place to end, then that's a solid place to end. It's there's, you know, there's no stretching a story beyond its means in that sense. Um, so yeah, I, I, I hope whatever happens, it is fitting for these characters and fitting for the readers who have been really invested for, for a while now. And I mean, yeah, I, I will desperately miss Barbara Gordon if she chooses to walk away from being that girl and I will definitely be a little butthurt about it but I mean the girl deserves a break she has gone through probably some of the worst stuff that we've seen um you know a superhero go through and still remain that optimistic and that unchanged in so many ways and that was part of what I liked about Gail Simone's run was yes we were seeing her deal with PTSD but she was also so determined to overcome it where she was going out and and fighting villains and and seeing you know a a gun in a situation and freezing but then you know dealing with it mentally and thinking okay I have to overcome this because I have to be Batgirl because this is what I want to do and this is where my heart is so to see her set that aside would be really really sad but we don't know yet. I, we'll we'll see in October. That is apparently the month where everything is happening. And moving right on into another fun bit of news. And I believe we've mentioned the book before, but there is a really fun spotlight with Katana Collins. Um, she, 
She is usually a romance novelist, but right now she's going to be writing the um, Harley Quinn Batman White Knight spinoff. So what did you think, Seth? Are you excited for this? I really am. I was already excited when we first talked about this story, but this interview uh, with Collins is amazing. Squeaky chair, you can't interrupt me. I'm the one in charge here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Got to assert dominant. No, um, I really like the approach that she reveals in this interview. The fact that she knew Sean before, now they're married, and she's been sort of living with this story behind the scenes. And because of that, she has a different perspective. She's seen what made it on the page and what didn't. She's got an idea of what she does and, and doesn't want to occur with this character. And it's picking up a few years after Curse when we get a chance to see Harley as a single mom with twins who's now being relied on by the FBI to track down this new killer, Starlet, who we've heard about with the old-timey thing. And um, this feeling also that we get a chance to see a different relationship between her and Batman as he becomes her confidant and she's sort of working through this mystery. But also because of the fact that we get this opportunity to sort of like see more about Harley in this position and and also what it's going to do for anyone who's had a lot of fun kind of following the, the main Curse of the White Knight storyline, things that came after it. But then how these other characters are picking it up now that Jack is gone, Batman is in prison, things have changed so drastically. Um, I also think it's kind of fun that, that she really uh, embraced this part of it, which was, was a really neat approach. She's like, look, there's a story that's never been told before here, and I get to be the one to tell it. I get to tell you about Harley later on. Not old Harley, but... At this stage in her life, Harley. And that's going to make for a really great story. The art looks awesome. The cover images look amazing. Um, and I think overall, it's one of those gifts where if you're looking for great storytelling, if you're looking for an opportunity to see more about these characters you love outside of what they've done so far, well, this is going to be a book you're really going to enjoy. So I love that we've already talked about this before, but that this interview provided so much great insight. Kendra, how about you? I may be a little bit biased, but I love husband-wife teams when it comes to comics. I mean, I, I absolutely do, because just like with novelists, like, for example, with Stephen King and Tabitha, they they become soundboards for each other. And I'm, I'm almost positive, especially with the information that she gives in her interview, that that's, that's exactly what this was, especially with Sean doing you know, not only the White Knight, but Curse of the, the White Knight, this whole entire series leading up to Harley getting her own. And so she's already got, she may be, she may have a background as the, the romance novelist, but she's got a unique insight into this specific version of Harley Quinn and who she is in this world. Now, she does say in the interview that it's a little bit different than any other Harley Quinn that we've met because she's dealing with being a single mom. Now, uh, I, I mean, it's, it, it is a new thing for her, but if they start calling them the Dee Dee Twins, I'm going to call a flag on the play because that's going to go into Batman Beyond. And <laughs> it's not the first time we've seen that. But 
I mean, I, either way, I'm excited for it. I mean, this one was one that as soon as I saw the cover art and it was released, I immediately hit up Steve and I was like, look, I know that you're the one who's been doing the reviews for, for this entire series. If you don't think I'm going to have a voice because <laughs> it's Harley, then you're crazy because it's so wonderful, like I said earlier, to see this character not only being expanded upon and given such depth, but especially in this universe where she has been treated with almost the utmost respect that any fan could ask an, a character to be given. I mean, she's treated as, as an absolute intellectual. She is seen as, as independent, as forgiving, as compassionate. It's just, it's a wonderful thing to behold on the whole, because this is a series that has honestly, at least for me, changed my view of the Batman universe, because this was something that did exactly what it promised, which was turn the story on its head. This was not something that had been done before in a way that was believable. And this one, absolutely reading it, had me wondering, is Batman really the bad guy? Like, could Joker all of these years just not have been getting the right dosage of medication that would have turned him? And instead of, you know, being treated that way and seeing the mental illness for what it was, he just consistently kept getting into bash outs with Batman. But, I mean, overall, I'm, I'm, I'm super excited for this one. I cannot wait to see what territory she explores. I can't wait to see these new villains. Starlet looks absolutely... I'm excited. I mean, I'm, I'm actually excited for the, the throwout of a new villain because... The producer, the starlet, all of this follows in a vein and a theme for it. But I'm excited to see what they're going to do, especially seeing the artwork for it and how much passion is being put into this series. I'm, this is one that I'm glad to see is continuing. Kelly, what about you? I completely agree. Um, it, not only does this series look like artistically and visually amazing, but I, I do also really like the idea of husband-wife creative teams because it's, uh, Seth, I think like you said, the fact that she's been living with this story and has been able to sort of develop her own idea of Harley Quinn and where her adventure is going to go next. And especially, the I, I think part of me almost can't reconcile the idea of seeing Harley Quinn as a single mom who's dealing with, you know, issues of, being a single mom, issues of depression, issues of figuring out who she is in, in this new world and who she is on her own. And not that we haven't seen Harley kind of grapple with ideas of having to redefine herself and having to figure out who she is without the Joker, but to put it in the context of she's a mother with twins who's now raising these children on her own and taking sort of a, a pivot in life and working with the authorities, working with Batman is really, really interesting. Um, so I'm excited to see what this Harley's like psychologically, what it adds to the depth of her character as a whole. And and just this has been such a great universe to exist in. It's definitely a, a twist on the entire Batman mythology that not only makes sense in its own way, but it brings something new to the characters that I think even almost carries over to reading you know, the main continuity of Batman, where you have to think, like, what 
are we missing in the context that we read Batman? What are we not seeing because we're rooting for him all the time? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm really excited to see this book. I'm more than happy to, you know, add, add another great husband and wife team to the roster. Um, and we, we've seen a husband and wife team take on Harley Quinn before for to very, very good results. So I'm, I'm definitely excited. So moving on into our next story, American Vampire is going to be returning also in October, on October 20th, with a new 70s vibe. What did you think, Seth? This looks really cool. I did not, I was not part of the original American Vampire work that they did on. I, I didn't, I knew nothing about it. This story was brand new to me. Like, I'll admit there's a certain degree of vampire stuff that just sort of like passes me by. Like <laughs> it just happens. Um, I, I did a couple of seasons of True Blood when I first met my wife so I could like, you know, watch the things she wanted to watch. But then after a while I faded out. There's been very few vampire stuff I've gotten into as much. Um, but this story, uh, this is kind of fun. I mean, for starters, 76 Bicentennial there was a lot of tension and strife during that time. I mean, pick your reason, whether it was politics, whether it was the uh, 74, I think it was, the gas crunch. You had 72 was Munich. Like, there was a lot of frustration. And then I love that this picks up on that with a uh, evil Knievel kind of vibe uh, <laughs> and a character's name that, you know, I mean, Skinner Sweet. It it just sounds both sweet and deadly. The Son of Sam plot. Um, and a lot of these just sort of like fun ideas that are a neat thing to sort of play with as, as you look back. And you can sort of see more than maybe was uh, recognizable in the moment. And that's that's one of those things that's fun about history. I, I really I'm a big fan of a TV show called The Alienist, which takes a look at New York around the turn of the century. And it, it it's fun for me because it, it shows what the thinking was at the time and some of the most highly advanced and evolved thinking. And there we are 100 years later going, oh, man, they they it's it's close, but they had no idea. And that can be a really fun experience because looking back on those moments with that sort of lens, it can make for some great storytelling. And I'll be completely honest, this might be a vampire series that you could catch me read. Kendra, how about you? I, um, I actually did pick up this one when it first came out, the, uh, the American vampire. So the one that was before this with Scott Snyder and uh, Stephen King. And that was really why I picked it up was because Stephen King had a hand in it, and I was like, okay, what could go wrong here? And <laughs> it, it, especially married with, you know, Scott Snyder, I was like, there's really not much that could go on the bad side. But the story itself was was amazing. It was, if you're a Wild West fan, it had that for you. So you had the, the glory days of John Wayne, and then you also got to meet Skinner Sweet who was was turned into the first American vampire, hence the name. And, I mean, the original story was so amazing that I, I picked up everything I could for it, that to see them, well, not them, but to see Scott bringing it back 
and doing 76, I'm I'm gonna be glued. I'm not nobody's gonna be able to get a hold of me until I finish reading this because I want to see what comes with with this story and what it's gonna add to the already, you know, the already great tale that they've done. One thing I do love though is that when he was asked about it, because they're they're calling this the final act, he had to make mention that while it is the end, it's not the end end. So there's still going to be this opening that's left <laughs> for more to come. And that's exciting. I mean, this was a very well done series. So, I mean, it's just, it's a great time to be a comic fan. There's so many wonderful things that are being given to us right now. <laughs> Kelly, what about you? Fortunately, I'm, I'm in the same boat as Seth with, I've, I've never read the original American Vampire. Um, and, and partly it was, I was at one of those periods where I was sick of vampire stuff, (laughs) but now looking back at it, I mean, this seems like it's going to be a really fun series. And I like the idea that they, um, I think in the article, it said they're looking at this reexamination of the American identity with kind of current fears and anxieties, but then tying it back to what was going on back in the seventies. So I, I think this might be the thing that wins me over to read this uh so again Seth I'm in the same boat as you there but <laughs> I, I that and I hit this point there's been enough of a reprieve in, in vampire stuff from like okay I could I could read some more vampire stories here and there um but yeah this this looks really fun and I I wish I had a little bit more background to go off of but I am all for a, sort of this shift in comics right now, because I feel like there's a lot of writers and creators who are re-examining what it means to be a, a, a hero in the United States, a villain in the United States, and a vampire at this point in history, and where have we seen these echoes in the past? So it does look really good. I believe I will be picking it up, but you know, we'll we'll see. Cause October is a big month, so we'll we'll see what the state of both comic ordering and my wallet is at that time. <laughs> so moving into our last piece of comic news, DC is collecting the Who's Who series, and that will be released in 2021. So this is going to be um, a reprinting of an encyclopedia of DC characters ranging from, I believe, 1985 to 1993. Seth, what do you think? I think this is a great idea. I'm <laughs> I'm aware of the fact that it's clearly about time. One of the great things about Who's Who is that you get to see all your favorite characters. You get this really fun sort of breakdown. You get to see characters you don't always remember. Some you forget. Um, not everyone knows who Zyklon is or whether or not it's even worth knowing. But now you have the chance to do it. And this is a huge really fun book uh, 1328 pages not too shabby um <laughs> certainly nothing to sneeze at I, I think it's a lot of fun though when you get a chance to as a collector sort of get one of these pieces and and just know that you've got this like chunk of history right there on the shelf anytime you want to open it up anytime you want to just have some fun reading about characters you love seeing them uh, portrayed by artists who aren't known for doing them or uh, or are known and are iconic for doing them. 
And I think overall, there's just that fun feeling of having this collection of amazing stories right there on your shelf whenever you want to grab it. Kendra? I agree. I mean, this this is a really cool little omnibus that I think is going to be something that every comic fan is going to want to have on their shelf. Because, yes, we have Google. And for those of us that are here at DCN and BKN, we have Steve. But sometimes it's <laughs> nice to be able to pick up, pick up a book and be like, okay. And I remember, like, I, I was looking through this article and I saw the, the cover of the Who's Who and I actually remember seeing these comics. Like I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm an 87 baby. So some of these came out when I wasn't able to appreciate comics, but I remember seeing these and, and, you know, just the fact that somebody was willing to, to archive and to document and keep, keep a track record of everything. It's really cool to see that because it's been a while since, since DC's put out one of their, um, one of their their what are they i'm i'm at a lack of words my goodness it's not the encyclopedia where they have you know Mm -hmm. little snippets of everyone and and you get to see who the character is and what role they played and were they relevant like you said seth were they relevant in the universe did they last were they just a, a a throwaway character this is something that's really cool i mean my daughter when when we uh, she's 14 now, but when when we first got into super big comics and we became the nerds that we are today, we got the Marvel and the DC Universe uh, encyclopedias because that was knowledge we wanted. We didn't know everyone that was a part of it, and honestly, I still don't know everybody that's a part of it. But she would sit there for hours upon hours and devour these and would come out of, of left field with facts about people that I had no knowledge of. And I really think that for anyone of any age whether you're you know a a kid who's just getting into it and is fascinated by superheroes or if you are one of those who've been in the game for a really long time and you just want to dust off you know your knowledge this is a really cool thing to have have available so i'm excited to see it come out kelly what about you absolutely yeah i um i i actually really like the throwaway characters. I like hearing about the ridiculous characters that have come out that just for whatever reason didn't land or were maybe shouldn't have existed in the first place because they just sound bizarre. Um, I, one of my favorite books that I have um, kind of just to read for fun whenever I have a free moment, uh, the, the regrettable superheroes and supervillains series, because it's just this encyclopedia of characters that you would never think existed but somebody pitched it and somebody else said yes to it. Like there's one character called Brick Bat, which is exactly what it sounds like. He is a guy <laughs> who dresses as a bat and throws bricks at villains. Like it's, I mean, just some bizarre stuff. So I'm really looking forward to this. Um, I, I love a good character encyclopedia and I like the fact that we're getting this kind of comprehensive, or at least close to comprehensive DC encyclopedia. So this should be really fun. Um, And yeah, it's uh, again, just a great book as as a comic book fan, like you were saying, Kendra, to have on the shelf to be able to reference or, you know, just to look through for some good fun facts. Maybe one of us will, will finally find something that Steve doesn't know. (laughs) 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 It's unlikely, but there has to be something. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah. Just to that, throw that out there, Edward is in the background listening because it's kind of hard not to, 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 you know, have him in the background. And as soon as you said that about <laughs> finding something that Steve doesn't know, he calls out, no, it's not. Because <laughs> 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 Steve yeah, I mean, is our know-all. I mean, <laughs> that man is able to throw out facts that I, I didn't even know people would ever keep track of. Right. I he is the go-to person. I I've reached out to him for s- several articles that I've done just like, "Hey, I'm working on something and you maybe know of a story that I could use for this point that I'm trying to make and he'll message me back with like a two-page list of stories." I mean, Steve is a you know, God bless him and I I can't wait to have him back on the show because Steve right. knows everything. <laughs> Indeed. It is truly a I bow to a power far greater than my own. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so that's going to wrap us up for the DC Comics News Podcast, episode 79. I have been your host, Kelly Gaines, here with the wonderful Kendra Hale and Seth Singleton. And guys, if the good people want to find you, Seth, where can they find you? You can find me here each and every week with an amazing cast and cadre of cohorts on the DC Comics weekly podcast you can catch us on mad love a harley quinn cast i'm sometimes no i am hosting every week the spinner rack and you can catch me at dc comics news where i write stuff otherwise uh twitter i'm one more singleton instagram i'm set the writer but if you love dogs you'll love my bruno and fiji page better your choice but if you need laughter and love, it's them. If you want writing, go to me. And in the meantime, what you should really want to know about two amazing people who are with me today. I'm talking about you, Kelly and Kendra. <laughs> <laughs> and Kendra, where can they find you? Uh, if they want to find me, I can be found on Twitter at Devour All Words. Um, I also write um, all things Harley for Dark Knight News. And I do reviews for Fantastic Universes, as well as doing more Harley on the Mad Love Harley Quinn cast. Very nice. And you can find me also on the Mad Love Harley Quinn cast, as well as with these beautiful people every week on the DC Comics News podcast. Uh, You can also find me doing opinion and editorial pieces for DC Comics News and on Twitter at Kel Gaines Wright. So if you've enjoyed the show, be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. We'd love to hear from you guys. And DC Comics News Podcast can be found on all of the major podcast platforms, including Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, and Google Play. And if you want to follow DC Comics News on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube, it's capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S-N-E-W-S. This has been the DC Comics News Podcast, episode 79. And there's one thing we like to say before we close any episode, and that is to read more comics. Have a good night, everybody.